The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey everybody, welcome to episode four of the Cinematography Podcast. The Quattro. The Quattro. We owe you a little bit of an apology. Really, I owe you the apology. We, uh, we recorded this a long time ago, and uh, we even recorded host wraps for it a long time ago, and I got so busy I wasn't able to edit them, and I feel uh, terrible. So those host wraps will be lost to the sands of time, or maybe published at a later date just as a nostalgia thing. Yeah, I don't know if anyone really wants to hear our wrap-ups of NAB now that NAB is, you know, um, two months past. Yeah, we missed NAB. We missed uh, Cinegear. Cinegear happened. That's right. Yeah. No, no, no wraps for that either. That was now almost, you know, three weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what do you do? <laughs> anyway, uh, we've got a great show. We've got Abe Martinez on the show. Who's Abe Martinez? Abe Martinez is a very talented cinematographer. He's had a extraordinary career. He's worked with some of the biggest names in the business as a camera assistant. He came up uh, really starting from the bottom, but I don't want to give too much away because it's a, it's a fascinating uh, story to listen to, and uh, it's going to be coming up pretty quick. So now we're kind of in the dog days of summer here. Like, Has there been any cool camera news? Anything uh, has excited you? Wow. Okay. Um, the AJA Scion is due to come out pretty soon. and Is, it, uh, is that their camera? It is. And uh, I got to see some footage that has not yet been released from a project that shot with the Scion camera. And I have to say the images looked extraordinarily clean, really, really pretty. Uh, I, I'm very optimistic about this camera and think that, uh, for a certain segment of the camera owners out there, this is really going to feel like a, a good addition, a, a nice fit, a good, a good niche in the, uh, the lineups from low end to high end. It's sort of the, uh, you know, most professional shoulder mounted camera system with a large 4k sensor and a PL mount. So, I mean, how, how big is the sensor on that? Yeah, it's super 35. Okay. That's pretty sweet. Global shutter, which is really nice. Global shutter is nice. And what, do you know what, uh, the maximum uh, ISO is on that? Actually, I don't know what the maximum ISO is. That, I think, remains to be seen. I know they are still doing a little bit of color work, but I got to say that the colors that I did see from it looked very good. It had a linear profile, so you're going to be able to adjust your your uh, your your highlights and your shadows uh, quite a bit. Do you know what kind of files it shoots in? It shoots in ProRes files. Interesting, interesting. So, yeah, 4K ProRes, and then there is also an option for raw files, raw 4K, uh, via an external recorder. Uh, the, the old ye oldie external recorder. (laughs) Yes. Ye old. We're about to have a whole bunch of more external recording options. Uh, one of our clients has been taking out the, um, uh, Panasonic GH4 with the YAGH base and been recording to an AJA key pro quad, which gives them 10 bit 4k recording out of the Panasonic GH4, which is very cool. It's for a new network series pilot. So uh, hopefully as soon as uh, we can get more details and some footage from that, we will share it. Yeah. I actually uh, shot uh, you, you helped uh, hook me up with a camera and we shot some stuff for a uh, play at Pasadena playhouse for Stoneface, And we shot it on the GH4 to make it look like a silent movie. I, I kind of like fell on my sword with the producers to get some kind of 4K camera because I didn't know how much we were going to have to zoom in on the image. And even though the projectors only did HD, I wanted to make sure that we could push in without it getting pixelated because 
you know, you don't want your silent movie to look pixelated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> you know, I wish that I had it at the time, but we now have the digital Bolex monochrome here, which is a super cool camera, and it would have been perfect for that. Yeah, it might have been cool. Except that it's not 4K, but it is black and white, and it would have been, you know, a yeah. really nice black and white. It, it might have been interesting to try that out. I, uh, Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in in the digital Bolex, but I, th- I, I think when I talk to a lot of people about stuff like that or the Blackmagic Mini... Uh, in film school, I had to shoot so much 16 millimeter and, and it's hard for me to move back to a small sensor. That's just me. I'm not condemning, you know, beautiful stuff gets shot on that all the time. I just think that my preference is usually a bigger sensor, but uh, I, I can understand. I think that uh, the small sensor has its place and particularly in documentary work. But, oh, I for mean, sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great, great movies have been shot in 16. Big movies. Of Academy course. Award winning movies. have been The shot Hurt Locker 16. was shot super 16. Ship, uh, leaving Las Vegas was super 16. A lot of movies. Have been yeah, yeah. No, I'm not. I'm not down on the format. I think that I just personally for my own stuff tend to like. Yeah, I just I, I think I just like the bigger frame. And I think it's because all I ever had available to me for the longest time was was the small, you know, was super 16, not even super 16 a lot. And uh, and so, you know, get, getting to uh, shoot on larger sensors, you know, to me is is, is something that it, it's it's like the training wheels have been taken off for me, not for everybody. I understand for documentary work. I get it. I get it all the way. Although, like when I was working on Chosen, we had a Blackmagic mini camera, and I, and I got to admit, we didn't. Not a lot of it made the cut. We didn't use it that much. Hmm. We used it for car mounts and stuff, and some of that made the cut, but I didn't love it. Hmm. Okay, I understand. Today on the show is uh, Abe Martinez. We had his uh, war story last episode. One of the things you need to know about Abe Martinez is that he is a professional in the truest sense of the word, and whereas a lot of people are getting into this business uh, a little bit older or maybe a little bit younger but just deciding hey I'm a director of photography and going out and deciding that that wasn't Abe Abe worked his way up quite literally from the bottom from the lowest possible job that you could have you know in this industry uh, as a driver he drove equipment and uh, I'm going to let him tell the full story but one of the things that is so amazing about listening to Abe talk about this is that he learned from so many you know so many luminaries of you know this industry so many people who uh, shared their information and there was really this sense of like mentorship where like you know he you know drank at the fountain of knowledge from <laughs> so many different people and each person that he worked with you know he took something else from that and moved up and you know he worked as assistants and he worked as an assistant he worked as an operator uh, you know before becoming a dp and Really, he it, it took him a very long time to get to the point that he's at now, and I believe that he's just blowing up now, and he's going to be, you know, even bigger. But there's a an element of people who just come in, they proclaim themselves, they plant the flag and say, I'm a, I'm a DP, I'm a professional, when, you know, professional is such a nebulous term. You may not actually be a professional, and you think you're a professional, or you may legitimately be a professional inside of your very small pond, or your, yeah. your, 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 you know very um let's just say uh, small pool of friends like maybe of all of your friends you're the one who bought the three thousand dollar dslr and you're the but i mean i remember when this was going on in the 90s with editing where somebody would go out and get a lease on an avid you know an avid's cost you know eighty thousand dollars and open up a post house they would they would open up a post house because they had an avid and that was it they didn't know how to operate it or they knew how to like 
operate it like I know how to look at the keyboard and punch the letters. That doesn't make me a, a fucking novelist. They weren't an editor. No, they didn't. They didn't know how to cut. Yeah. They knew how to you know move data around. They knew how to move images around and splice them together. But yeah. that does not make you an editor. Same way as like you know a lot of these quote unquote professionals are more like camera pointers. It's like they knew how to point the camera and turn yeah. it on, but they weren't necessarily about. Well, and I mean I I'm not weepy about the loss of 35 millimeter film is the main thing that we do. But I will say that having a barrier to entry meant that you had to have your shit together before somebody would hire you to do something. And I think I, I, I'm not a big believer that a barrier to entry should stop you from being an artist of any kind. I think you should be able to go out and do your thing and you know, it shouldn't, it shouldn't cost you that much um, to, to learn and to, you know, I, I, I always say actually like the, the generation of filmmakers coming up now, I'm afraid of them. Cause when I got to film school, I'd like made a handful of shorts on super eight and VHS these guys and girls have been working with DSLRs and professional grade editing equipment their whole lives. When I got to film school, I didn't know how to edit. I knew how to edit on like one VCR to another VCR. I didn't know how to like operate the Avid or operate Premiere or anything that fancy. I, I think there's a, a different set of disciplines too, which come into different sort of the the blanket term of professionalism. Like if you're a professional in reality television production, you're not a professional uh, cameraman necessarily for motion picture use. You can have uh, multiple skill sets, but I find that people who really have specialized or learned one discipline believe mistakenly, or several people believe mistakenly, that that then qualifies them to be a professional in anything that involves a camera. And let me tell you, I've shot one wedding. I am not a wedding shooter. I will never <laughs> be a wedding shooter. Shooter, And there is, it's not a pejorative to say, If oh, I that- cook you dinner, does that make me a chef? Well, I know some people who say like, oh, you make a film, you're a filmmaker. Congratulations. That that's, you know, you've fulfilled the definition. But I feel like if you're a cinematographer or let's say maybe you're a wedding videographer and you believe that you're also a cinematographer, they're very different skill sets. Uh, If you miss the cutting of the cake, if you miss that ring going on someone's finger, you know, that's it for you. That's those are really important things. And as a, a cinematographer working in motion pictures, you have a million takes. Well, maybe not a million takes, but you have try three. You, Come on. You have the ability to million work takes. for perfection. You mm-hmm. do. I, I I really felt like there was many sets that I worked on where a director or a director of photography or someone at a particular moment had the ability to work towards perfection. It was not one take and move on. They had the ability to repeat, repeat, make changes and massage that perfect moment. Well, that's something that, you know, Frazier said in our last episode nine years ago. Uh, (laughs) Frazier said that, you know, he sort of thought that being a narrative filmmaker kind of encompassed all of the skills. And whereas if you're a documentarian and that's all you've ever done, throwing you into a situation where you're expected to shoot narrative is you're you're not going to necessarily have the right tool set if you haven't done it before, if you haven't been trained to do it. Exactly. I think that's that's completely true, as do the people who shoot television news or people who shoot broadcast or corporate. There's a different skill set that you work and develop and exercise in in your journey to becoming a professional and through your professional career. So, So what do you think makes somebody a professional? Wow. Well, you have to master not only the the craft of your job, which might be to deliver the the expected deliverables, which could be images, could be images and sound, could be executing the director's vision or someone else's vision, the producer's vision. Uh, I've worked in reality television. I've worked in music videos, commercials and narrative scripted stuff. And it's very different requirements that you have to deliver in all of those those different uh, capacities. But it's weird because we're living in a world now, you know, like, you know, 10, 15 years ago when you when you and I were kind of starting out. 
Um, 20 years ago. 20. Yeah, I guess like, well, you know, I'd done, I done. I was a makeup effects artist 20 years ago working on like low budget movies in the southeast. But point taken. So those movies were shot on 35 millimeter with really large cameras and really large camera crews. And that and the camera, the film stock wasn't that sensitive. So you had to have more lights. So, again, the barrier to entry just went up and up and up. So if you were going to make, uh, you know, a little horror movie, you're still probably talking hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oh, yes. For a low budget movie mm-hmm. or millions of dollars for still a pretty low budget movie. Whereas today, like there are movies that you can go, uh, you know, rent at Redbox or on Netflix or whatever right now that were made for fifty thousand dollars and look great and are well made. And that's because the cameras are more light sensitive, so you don't need as many lights. And you can make you can work with an ENG sized crew now and make narrative stuff. This web series I'm working on, Twenty Seconds to Live, we generally have a crew of like four or five people. And I think that is kind of the the magic actually of technology today, less than about your ability to be a professional. Technology has changed, the barrier to entry has changed, and for the people who really genuinely are professionals and are masters of different disciplines. You can now take very small camera lighting grip things that used to be big, bulky and expensive and you make it very difficult for you to make a high quality, you know, very slick, very glossy finished project. Now you can fit all of that into the back of a Mini Cooper. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know you mock my uh, Kessler Crane Cine slider, but, uh, you know, like on the, the last episode of 20 Seconds to Live that we did. You know, we did this great movie and we were in the, we were in a really tiny theater in Hollywood that we were shooting in a place called Lifebook Playhouse. It's a teeny tiny space. We're trying to make it look like the magic castle, like the close up room kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And we needed a dolly in on a guy who had his arm outstretched. There's nowhere we could have laid dolly track. There's no way we could have gotten that without some kind of slider. And I, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to uh, I'm not trying to completely poo poo what, what Kessler's done. I think Kessler actually makes a great product for a very particular market segment. But you're generally not like the Kessler Crane customer. But that's changing these days. You are not necessarily always just doing uh, the most professional, the most expensive, the, the the most grandiose slider. You're finding different camera options, smaller camera options. And because you're working professionally with something that might be considered uh, consumer or prosumer equipment, yeah. you're actually able to now leverage that technology. You're able to leverage a less expensive slider to do exactly what it is. That so, you yeah. So, I mean, like, you know, you might say that that's not a professional grade slider, although like I've brought it into battle many times. But, you know, like I did this. I think I showed you I did this uh, mini documentary about my friend Gabe Leonard, who's a, who's a great painter. And, uh, you know, for the interview stuff, I just kind of wanted to give it a little bit of movement because his his whole vibe is about being a cinematic uh, painter. And so I wanted to have the camera moving on the interview. So I threw my little three foot cine slider on my tripod. And just as we were interviewing him, I just kind of moved it back and forth and just gave it like a little bit of something. So when you cut back to the interview, it's not dead. And uh, nothing against a stationary interview shot. There's great ways to do that. <laughs> Errol Morris is one of my heroes. He does nothing but stationary interview shots. And, and the way that they've developed that product line in particular is like they've put quick releases and stuff on it now. So it sets up really fast. And it's it's not a fussy little stupid piece like when I first got it. You had to fuck around with Allen wrenches and shit the whole time. And they've gotten rid of that now. And 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 so to me, it's like you can get really top top notch results very quickly if you're willing to work with these smaller cameras but i also feel like when you look at all the cameras you know when you look at the size of the cameras they're all shrinking mm-hmm. you know i think if we were to you know magically jump 10 years into the future whatever the alexa turns into will probably be about the size of a dslr or as a silicon imaging 2k or something it's going to be a smaller camera eventually uh, i agree it will get smaller 
I don't believe we're going to be in the the iPhone realm. I know that there's people who are pushing really hard. Did you see that Bentley commercial that was shot in the back of? No. Oh, it was a Bentley commercial, and it was shot with two iPhones and edited on 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 iPad Airs or or yeah, I, I mean, or, or it's a perfectly fine stunt. I mean, I, you know, I don't. I mean, the the problem with the camera on the iPhone is the sensor is you know the size of a grain of dust, and they added some sort of like adapter and lenses and all kinds yeah, of yeah. stuff, and you know. Just because they could do it, I don't think that ever means that you probably should. There, there's a place but, for it. You can gussy it up. But yeah, I mean, like, I don't... It was a stunt. It was a stunt to I, sell Bentleys. I mean, I think that, <laughs> well, I, I mean, you know, far be it for me to to say where technology's going, but it seems to me like we've arrived at a place where, you know, the shooters and the producers and directors are expecting whatever size sensor they want. They want Super 35 or Micro Four Thirds or Full Frame or whatever, you know. And, and they're wanting higher and higher resolution, 4K, 5K, and that's just going to keep going up. And I think that whatever housing will fit that sensor and you can put a lens into is what we're going to be shooting on. And I think that the body of the camera is going to get smaller. The, the, the only thing I think Aerie is probably never going to give up on in a good way is the ergonomics of their cameras. That's where when I talk to shooters who work with, say, the Red Epic, which is a smaller camera and a lighter camera, they still prefer the Alexa because they prefer the way it's balanced. And those are valid criticisms, although far be it from me to, to defend Red on this, but uh, they decided they wanted to go as light and as small as possible. And I think they really did a great job achieving that. That is one of the big benefits of that that you see people running around with movies and gimbals i love the the red epic form factor i think it's awesome and when i was working on chosen everybody was like well we really wanted to get an alexa for this and i was like but don't you think you can get this camera into like some smaller corners because we're shooting in some small locations they're like we would have made it work i have no doubt that this crew who were an awesome crew would have made it work from my point of view if the epic was good enough to shoot prometheus and the lord of the rings movies on or or the hobbit movies on uh I, i feel like it's good enough for whatever the hell I'm doing. And I feel like at the point where you're like Alexa versus Epic, it's really like what best serves what you're doing on this particular job. And it's not just those cameras. The new AJA camera is going to be that way. There's like a whole arsenal of these cameras coming out. I would actually argue that the Panasonic GH4 deserves inclusion in that list. We did an event actually not too long ago, big launch event here. Where we had a hundred people plus come and look at footage from the, the GH4 on a big screen projected in 4k on a 25 foot screen. And we, had access to a test that was done by Stargate Studios in Pasadena with the Epic oh, yeah. Dragon, the uh, Aerie Alexa, and um, they hacked Magic Lantern 5D Mark III and uh, God, oh, and a Canon 1DC. And I'll tell you that there wasn't anyone I think who left there who didn't think that the GH4 easily stacked up to all those cameras. Which I, was- I like the GH4, and I think I told you about this because you you hooked us up with one um, I did uh, recently a theater job um, at the Pasadena Playhouse where I created video projections with my creative partner in crime, Anthony Backman. We created projections for a show called Stoneface that's like emulating old Buster Keaton movies. And uh, this isn't really a complaint about the GH4, but it's more about what I know if I shoot on it again is go way wider on the lenses than you think. Because, you know, like we were on a 35 millimeter lens trying to get a wide shot and we had to get so far away. And I was like, man, I wish we had that's a, tw- a 50 on Super 35. Exactly. Yeah. We like we needed like a 20, 25 millimeter lens and we would have been in, in better shape. You needed if you needed a 25 on Super 35, you need, would have needed about an 18. Yeah. Yeah. That, that same yeah we, and I and I, I mean, it's it's just an adjustment again, like, you know, moving back. If you were shooting, you have to think I almost feel like I have to put myself in film school brain and be like, OK, when I was shooting on 16 millimeter, what lens would I have wanted then? 
and you know maybe increase it a little bit uh, i'll make it easy for you it's one focal length so a 50 if you want the look of a 50 you would use a 35 if you wanted the look of a 35 you'd use a 25 or a oh, 28. okay so it's one focal length and you'll do fine so and it's funny because stone face was a show that we had done originally at sacred fools and i'd used my 5d mark ii and with my 50 millimeter lens, I was able to get a wide shot from, you know, 15, 20 feet away. And then when we were shooting this thing on the GH4, we were in the, you know, the Pasadena Playhouse is a giant cavernous theater. And we were like in the back row trying to get them. We we're like, oh, shit, are we going to be able to get this shot? Um, you know, we have to, you know, get a, uh, you know, pile driver and get through the wall here. <laughs> go all Orson Welles on this thing. Really, you, it must have been a very wide shot that you needed. It was a pretty wide shot because it was a wide shot of a stage door. The, the gag was that a stage door is projected on a, on a uh, flat on the mm. on the stage, and then like Fatty Arbuckle walks up and you know waves at the at the crowd, and then uh, steps behind the flat, and as he does, he steps into the projection of on the stage door. So we were shooting that element of uh of, of stepping into the stage door so it had to be actual size yeah, yeah. basically they built it on the same stage that the show was going to be on but it ended up being like oh my god like 35 sounds wide to me and it and it's not so again like that's not a knock it, on the a, gh4 it's no, just it's, an, a, it's an adjustment you have to make in your head it, it's a normal for super 35 and i know people who are used to the concept of full frame 35 and full frame still photography they're going to say like well you know the you know 35 that's actually equivalent to a 70 because you know there's a uh, a 70 millimeters is a two times crop factor between four thirds and uh yeah. and full frame but the truth is is that people don't really Math. shoot movies don't people don't shoot movies in, in full frame they shoot in super 35 people shoot television shows well people have been shooting movies i think since the 5d came out i think people have been shooting movies in, that's like the first practical full frame camera that people have had access to yeah but there's not too many productions out there that have been using the 5d and any sort of yeah. like i mean unless you count active valor which you know is shot by a, a client of ours uh, the silent house how about that that was all shot on the 5d mark ii the silent house i'm oh it's great it, it must be a horror movie it is a horror movie <laughs> what you mock me i'm not mocking you i just know i know i know what your uh, predilections are the silent house is great okay so the silent house is um it's actually a remake, but they they basically shot it on the 5D, and the trick was to make it all look like one continuous shot, sort of like you know Hitchcock's Rope, oh god, but done with <laughs> but done with some digital finesse, and it's actually pretty good. Was, I, wasn't that Russian Ark? No, Russian Ark was actually done in one shot. <laughs> oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> Rush, which, which I couldn't stand. <laughs> yeah, no, Russian Ark was like a stunt to do a whole movie in one in one unbroken take. And they oh, sh- okay, no, no, this was like this is shot like a regular movie, but they it was like Hitchcock's Rope, where they're figuring out ways to stitch multiple shots together. I understand and, that, and they won't tell anyone where they did it. Like I, I heard a Q and A with the with the directors at one point, and they were they were somebody asked them directly that like there's a point where somebody gets in a car and they're like. And they were like, is that where the cut was? Because the camera kind of moves into the car and they're like, nope, we we figured out how to have somebody outside the car and there's a handoff of the camera. <laughs> I, I think it's it's really cool how it works. And I, I love that. That was, a, that was a feature film shot. I saw the silent house at, uh, I believe, the Sherman Oaks Arclight, like big screen, got a pretty, pretty big release. I want to say maybe three years ago. And the 5D at that time, not really considered a professional cinema movie making tool. I mean, granted, Silent House, uh, Active Valor, the last episode of, of House, none of these. I mean, this is is hardly like a, you know, gangbusters for the format of full frame 35. Yeah. I mean, this is a few, you know, unique examples. Super 35 is still the dominant standard and will probably be the dominant standard long after oh. you and I are dead. So I 
I, I mean, after next week, really? Well, that long? <laughs> is that how much time we have left? That is. I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you about that. <laughs> oh, crap. So what are we going to do about episode five? <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll uh, have it in my will when it gets released. Okay. Well, uh, let's, let's go back to professionalism because the rules have changed with equipment and professionalism. And I think it's really, really great that there is still uh, young cinematographers, young professionals who really have mastered their discipline and mastered their craft like Abe Martinez. And I don't want to say anything else about it. Let's just go straight to it. Here we go. Abe Martinez. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. Hi, I'm here with Abe Martinez, a camera assistant on some of the biggest Hollywood movies you've ever seen, who's recently moved to Nairobi. And will tell us all about that is making movies all over the world, making television and movies recently moved into uh, cinematography. Thank you very much for coming out, Abe. Thank you very much. Glad to be here and thank you for having me. What inspired you mm. to get into camera, to get into filmmaking? What path did you take film school or? Well, I am. My name's Abraham Martinez and I'm a Latino and I'm from Texas in a neighborhood that had no cameramen way far away from the industry. What was the major metropolis in Texas? Uh, San Antonio. Oh, so not even near like Austin. Where Not even like... near Austin. No major production hubs. So growing up, early living there, you know, we bounced around Texas, Houston, Dallas. But in middle school, there was a very profound film that I was watching without my parents knowing about it. Somewhere around middle school, late middle school, I watched The Killing Fields. And The Killing Fields... You know, I'm sure you're aware of the film. My parents actually took me to see The Killing Fields in the theater, and I was a little kid. And oh. I remember the only thing I even remembered at the time was the scene where that where uh, oh, what was the dude's name? Hangus Nor, the lead actor, finds a cow in a field and like pierces its skin and sucks its blood yes. for any nutrients. Oh, that's so good. So dark. Yes. Well, that film it wasn't so much the big issue of like shining a light on injustice, shining a light on something that was hidden, and the conspiracies behind it. I think I was still too small for that. What really excited me was the, to possibly have a job that was that exciting to be the cameraman, mm-hmm. the guy who took pictures, the guy who was like in war in unpredictable circumstances. So you, Malkovich was the leader. That's right. And he was he was a photographer, right? Yes. So were you patterning it after after his character in that, or were you excited by the filmmaking? It, it resonated with me as as a possible profession to be a war cameraman. Yes. Oh wow taking pictures, riding on motorcycles, zipping around town and like getting how, called. How old are you at this basketball. point? This is a middle school, late middle school. I have to do the math to figure out the years, but so you're like 14, 15. Yes. Yeah. But, but even then, as bef- even before that I was making my own little comic books. Well, you know what most kids do. They do a yeah. story, they draw frame by frame, you know, jingles, wanting to shoot commercials. I love, you know, the hot wheel commercials. I said, how, how great, but there was always in the back of my head, like it would be great to do that for a living. Yes. Yeah. Not only play with the toys, but maybe shoot it and come up with jingles. But that movie is what really set the ground saying, hey, this could be a possible job being a cameraman, a war cameraman. So so was there like a social consciousness that was part of your upbringing or just part of your character at that point that made the killing field specifically resonate with you as... It wasn't just like, hey, I want to go shoot Batman well, movies. I want to go make a difference in the world. Yes, that came much later. What happened was I took photography, learned black and white, started developing, going into the soup frame by frame. But it was not about being in stills. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, yeah, I would have to transform into a cameraman, move, moving pictures. But all these words I did not know about. I didn't know cameraman or DP or movies. Just that movie was more about having a profession that's going to take you to unpredictable circumstances 
and adventure. So in high school, when I took the the test to is a job placement test, they give you a little scantron. Yeah. Do you like working with your hands? Yes. Do you like working outdoors? Yes. Do you like working with teams? Yes. And you know, the other guys maybe are signing off different, like do you work better by yourself, whatever. So I fill out this form telling me where I'm going to be like potential job uh, direction or to give you suggestions for college. And as the results came out, working with your hands, working with teams, they put me down to be a gardener. Oh boy. So here, here I am. A, as a team of gardeners. A team of gardeners. They could not come up with the cameraman. <laughs> so when I look back on, I'm all like, yeah, I could see where that is a possible option, but there was never, hey, you can be a cameraman. Yeah. And I don't harp too much talking about Mexican, but it was very interesting in my neighborhood. There is certain things that I kept with me that carried over because my uncles went to war. They were drafted to mm-hmm. war. My grandfather went to Korea. So the only time someone in my neighborhood ever traveled was because of war. Ew. Yeah. So this was like a way to have intersection of, okay, well they traveled and I would see pictures. I would see pictures from Vietnam or Korea. And I think those photographs really sat with me as a kid, just looking at life in a documentary fashion, although I did not know the term at the time. Yeah. But it was a way for me to connect saying, you know what, quite possibly I can go overseas and not have to go to war. <laughs> I can possibly just shoot. But then it should be a war cameraman. So you see the killing fields and you're like, I don't have to go to war. I can do that. Yes. <laughs> I can go photograph the war. That's right. And then the other thing is my mom remarried. My stepfather was an engineer and he went to Saudi Arabia. And uh, he used to take pictures. He had a, a Nikon. Um, sorry, Canon. As faithful as I am. He took many pictures and showed slideshows of uh, all these exotic adventures of him overseas at the oil rigs in the Middle East. So we would sit there and watch slides after slides, you know, mm-hmm. you hear that beautiful, you hear the projector, <laughs> hours and hours. Oh, but, man. but seeing him overseas was, un- it just reinforced the idea. There's a whole world out there to explore and what a better way to have it be your job. Yeah. To take yeah. pictures. So I, I had no talent yet. My photography class teacher never gave me any points extra saying I'm talented. I just was taking pictures of my friends. Mm-hmm. However, during high school, I did take a film video class. And by then, I was much more confident in leading a very specific vision. And my teachers did say, oh, maybe you should do this for a living. And I was just like, well, I, I intend to. And all the other classmates were encouraging. So through the use of words with my teacher and my classmates, they were very encouraging, saying maybe you should pursue this. But yeah. it only reinforced the idea, like, I am still pursuing this path. Nice. Yeah. So when's the first time that you get your hands on a motion picture camera and start well, doing it, anything with it? Well, it was during the eighth grade. My stepfather bought a video camera, a little VHS camera. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we began shooting uh, Saturday Night Live skits. Oh, cool. So we began shooting a little comedy. And then we also shot uh, breakdancing. <laughs> Me and my friends breakdancing. Yeah, so yeah. those were the very first things, which my mom still has that tape somewhere. of uh, YouTube. Yes, hopefully not. Uh, I thought I was good at breakdancing, but now that I look back on it, I was not good. It's funny what the mind will, will tell you. But that was the first time that I ever shot anything. But at that time, I didn't think of it as a job. I was still just an idea as a, as a cameraman. Yeah. But it was still evolving its process. Were you writing it? Were you acting in it? Or I, would, you I primarily... would take, my buddy would write and act. I would set up the camera and I would take the one bulb, you know, 75 watt bulb and light the set just but I never even thought, seriously, there was no, any idea of like making it look good on lighting. It was none of that. I didn't yeah. never thought of it as a, as a craft. 
it was just a way to see ourselves on TV and have fun. So at what point does it click into your head that this is a craft, this is a career path you can follow? So my senior year, the same time I took the film video class. It was like a little inkling idea to be a director, but mostly it was just camera. It was during that time I met my wife in high school. Oh, wow. I was working at Taco Bell. Mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to be a cameraman. I was hanging around kind of like the film kind of guys. First of all, maybe nowadays there are, but back then there was no like film guys. But my, my buddy wanted to make movies and he was more uh, a fan of movies, talk about movies. But I would always say, I'm gonna be a war cameraman. Mm-hmm. But so when, I, when I'm there with my wife in high school, I'm gonna be like, I'm gonna go to war, be a cameraman. Mm-hmm. But for a 17 year old girl, she's like, why do you wanna do that? You know, you're gonna get shot, I'm gonna be a widow. She's like, and then you can do something else. So the more I hung out with my film nerd friend who just would talk about, you know, five easy pieces or talk about all these like (laughs) little indie movies that I did not know about, he kind of opened up a world for me. Uh, His love for Quentin Tarantino, his love for... Quentin Quentin was much later afterwards. He definitely opened a world that quite possibly movies are the route to go. Mm -hmm. After high school, I went to community college, took some film, a little bit of film programs. I took basics. Then I went to University of North Texas, did to finish up school and they had a film production class. Now they had this thing called public access. Yeah. And I don't know if it's still around. It was an opportunity. Somebody recommended it. I don't remember. I think who. they got rid of public access. Yeah, public access was a, a channel that would air on cable, I believe, that gave you time slot to do whatever you wanted. Like yeah. right now we'd be shooting this podcast and it would be a show. It would have like a juggler or a guy who pierces or a guy who's tattoo. But I ended up doing camera. But in there, I met this one guy, and I don't know how I knew about Aeroflex at the time. I was sitting at his desk, and he had a picture, a hand drawing, I guess he drew it himself, of an Aeroflex camera with the three turrets. And I said, wow, that's an Aeroflex camera. It wasn't even like the real camera. It was like a drawing that he did that yeah. was on the wall, enough for me <laughs> to be like freaking out about it. And he's like, yeah, I own one. And he goes, I'm doing a little documentary. Would you like to come out and work on it? I was like, yes, of course. So already at that time, I was doing cameras. I was working the camera, the video camera, doing zooms mm-hmm. and everything was on a pedestal. There was no like taking that camera off, going handheld, which I wish I would have thought of that back then. It was just very safe, very zoom in slow, very studio-ish. So he takes me out and we're out in the field. It was nighttime. I was in a like rough neighborhood. And then I was like, you know, it was like war. Uh, yeah. So immediately he goes, I go, what do I need? He's like, here, here's a flashlight. I want you to be with the cameraman. So I was put on the camera, had a flashlight to change the T-stop which there was no changing T-stops in the middle of the dark, mm-hmm. but it was to change the turret. And I did the focus. I had no idea about focus puller, I had nothing. So I was immediately put in on the camera. So you were basically thrown into being an AC, like learning on the job. Yes, and didn't even know what AC was mm-hmm. at that time. He took a liking to me and we started doing these other projects where I began doing camera and camera work, but then it was like a little bit of everything. He introduced me to this one producer and she hired me as a PA and I was still in college my junior year. Then all of a sudden, things just started to ramp up. I was PA, very short-lived PA career. I helped out the grip on a job from Mobile Production Services, MPS. It's a rental house in Dallas mm-hmm. where I was going to school and to Denton, University of North Texas, about 45 minutes away north. I was helping the grip load out. I gave him my card. I said, hey, it's summertime. You know, if you, if, if you ever need a, a grip, I figure grip would be the best way for me to figure things out. Yeah. Although it's very hard. Um, <laughs> could be worse, could be art department. Yes. And then he gave my card to the guy, the owner of the rental house. 
And he calls me up. He said, hey, what are you doing? I'm all like, oh, I'm just waiting. You know, he goes, don't you have a job? I'm like, well, I kind of. He's like, well, do you want a job? Like, this is seriously my phone call to like a professional business movie, business phone call. Wow. The owner of the production rental house calls me, says, what are you doing? I'm in bed. He's like, why aren't you working? And I'm like, well, and he didn't even give me a chance to answer. He goes, do you want a, do you want a job? I go, who is this? He was like, this is Brad at MPS. And MPS, if you're in Dallas, you know who MPS is. Especially by this time, I was already doing little productions. And I'm like, this is like, this to me, it's like Hollywood calling. He's like, do you want a job? I'm like, yeah. So I show up and they hire me on the spot and I start delivering dollies and lights. I become their driver for the summer. So basically they're a rental house. Or... I'm the rental house driver. I'm the guy in the van who goes around dropping off, uh, you know, a 2K or a Asfron or a 16 miller package. I was their driver. Now, let me ask you, and I know Texas is a big place, but we're talking what you're like early 90s-ish. This is 1995. When I think of, well, I guess it's a little bit earlier, I think of Robert Rodriguez and the stir he made with El Mariachi. And does that have any impact on you in Texas around that time? It has an amazing impact. Robert Rodriguez, to me, was like, wow, if it can happen to him, it could possibly happen to me. We come from the same area, San Antonio. Mm-hmm. And for sure, hands down, he made it. And when I saw that he, you know, El Medachi and the buzz that he was having, me being a co- in college, I was like, wow, if that can happen, it can really happen. I mean, I didn't want to direct. I didn't want to, de- I didn't want to do like these big things. I just wanted to get in the business. Yeah. So even delivering lights. But yes, he had a great influence on me. Not in terms of, it's more from coming from the same neighborhood or the same background. And yeah. saying that we can possibly make it because at that time people were saying, you know, people in the business only hire their kids, nepotism, yeah, yeah. it's very competitive. They kept saying all these things. And I figured if someone has to do it, why not it be me? But yes, Robert Rodriguez, him and Richard Linklater. Um, when they both kept it real and stayed in Texas. They they're stayed both, in Texas. They're both still there, I think. Right? Yes. And that was an option. And, and now Terrence Malick is there in Austin. There's a handful of guys still there. But at that time, just prior to me working at that rental house, I ended up working on my first movie in the art department. You just mentioned it earlier. I don't mean to disparage art department people. I've done a lot of art department and I've never been more exhausted than after a day of being in the art department. Very true. Yes. So we had an internship program at my school and I saw it in the, in the newspaper and, and someone's like, oh, these guys were from my, the same school. They're out, they're freelance and they're production manager and they're from North Texas. So I go in there and interview and I get the internship in the art department. What they did is they took the, the movie sets from Mexico, from uh, Total Recall, took the old sets. Uh-huh. They were sitting in Mexico and I guess they put them in, a, in a, some containers and mm-hmm. this movie producer bought them. So my job as an intern was to help the art department rebuild these into new sets. So they repurposed the sets for spaceships for a movie called Space Marines. So this is prior to me working at the rental house. I already knew I want to be in camera. I knew this, but hey, I'm working on a movie. Yeah. And when I saw them roll out with the Airy 535B, when I saw the camera team roll across the warehouse in like Dallas, Texas, and I saw the camera team holding onto the camera, walking with the dolly, I was like, that's where I need to be. But what is that moment like for you? I mean, when you were in college, had you taken a lot of film courses? No. Well, that's the thing. It's like because... My junior year and even my sophomore year, I was already in public access, so I felt like I was already doing it. Yeah. And so this is the great... So, so what this, was your here, major? Here, here's the serendipity of it all. It was film. Okay. But instead, I was already working. So by the time I graduated college, I'd already worked on Space Marines. I was loading film on like country music videos, music videos. I worked on NFL films or Fox Sports promo. I was already working in it. So by the time I got to my senior year, I already had a resume. 
Oh, nice. And so I, there was no reason for me to pay extra for a 16 millimeter class. It was going to be so expensive. So what I, what I did was I found it like to me, well, I remember taking, uh, I had some questions for the lead film guy in the, in the unit. And by that time I was already, uh, you know, working with cameras. I knew some questions, the right questions to ask. I was like into super eight and I brought my super eight camera. I started asking the professor questions and he paid no attention to my questions or didn't really respond well to me, to me asking about cameras. So what I did was I'm not going to pay these classes. I'm not going to pay for these classes when I'm already doing it. Mm-hmm. I already have a resume and it wasn't like, don't get me wrong. When I first got my job at the rental house, I mean, there was steps that led to me being a truck driver to being, I ended up being a prep tech mm-hmm. my last year, senior year. So I went straight my senior year. I was a hundred percent camera prep tech. I was bringing out camera packages for people to prep. And then I would go to school Tuesdays and Thursdays. And then come Wednesday, I was prepping packages to go out. Even like, what's that horror movie or Children of the Corn or like sending stuff out. I mean, I was sending stuff out for Children of the Corn that they were shooting in Austin. Like I was freaking out when Gary J, who was a camera operator for Michael Mann, coming in to prep a camera package. Like I was already like engaging (laughs) and asking questions to people while I was still in college. Like I was meeting industry people. So I instead of what I did was was take theory classes. And as I mentioned the, earlier in the, about the killing fields, I took world cinema as my, uh, the bulk of my classes. Yeah. So I took Chinese, Hong Kong, um, African, India, world cinema, Asian cinema, everything that had to do with global cinema I took because I felt that experience took me to another place. I felt like I was living it when I saw, you know, an Indian movie, The World to uh, the World According to Apu, or do you remember any of those, or these, mm-hmm. these Hong Kong movies? I, it really transcended me to another place. Just watching it and writing papers on it and just seeing that whole transition with Hong Kong and their cinema, what it meant to join China. There was like so much there that, that was just really just taking me to a field trip like no other. But I, I didn't know that this was gonna come later down the road to fruition. I took all these classes and in the end, I just took a lot of theory and my day job was already doing it. So at a certain point, you're working for some of the top cinematographers in Hollywood as an AC. What got you from where you were in Texas to working on some of these huge movies that you've worked on? Right. So every step of the way, I was always excited just to have a job. Mm-hmm. like. Oh my gosh, I'm delivering lights. I, I made it, mom. <laughs> you know, it was like one of those. Every step of the way, even till today, it's like, wow, is this really happening? Uh, every day is like this for me. So when I was delivering lights, I'd already made it to me. You know, I, th- I was like, this is it. But it just kept moving forward, like from the van. Then Texas was too hot working in the warehouse. Obviously, the cameras are in the air conditioning area. Yeah. You know, I, I redid all their filters. That relationship to the camera, when I look back on it, maybe it was enthusiasm or whatever, it just kept going along the way. So by the time I finished college, like I said, I already had a full resume, but I, I knew rental house was the, definitely the way for me to meet people. Mm-hmm. Like I said, Gary J was in transition to camera operator and he was still firsting. He was in there, he worked with Michael Mann. He was on Michael Mann's team. Yeah. And there was other guys that worked on different Austin filmmakers that were there. I graduated from Texas in 1996. It was time for me to go to New York. Mm-hmm. My wife was going to fashion school there. So I would get a job at a rental house. And I ended up going to the classic F&B Seco, which is in the meatpacking district. They just changed over. It's an Airy, Airflex house. And I ended up getting a job there as a prep tech. So I'm there for two years. Anyone that wants to start 
freelance or want to work in movie business, I tell them to start in a rental house. Because there you learn gear and you meet people. Whoever was prepping on Friday night, I was going to be with them Saturday morning. Mm-hmm. I didn't know who it was, but my buddy was a long time, Bill Hell, who's now over at Claremont. He was uh, prep tech with me. He would give me the inside New York scoop because I'm the Texas boy. Mm-hmm. So he's like, you know, that, that guy is uh, Paul Boda. He's Ralph Boda's son. You want to get in and do his order. So here you go, Abe. So I would pull out the BL4, pull out the Airy 3, and they come in. I give them coffee. I get to know about them. And in this business, it's, as you know, it's relationship. Of course. It's just being consistent also in what you do. For two years in New York, ended up being a prep tech. Met amazing people like Eric Schmidt, who shot the mechanic. Mm-hmm. He was in transition a little bit later. I mean, he was already DP, but he was still coming off the gaffer. Barry Markowitz rented a camera. There was like bigger names attached to the little boutique rental house, yeah, which has much more FaceTime. Then after that, uh, my wife gets promoted to LA to be a fashion designer. And I said, well, my two years is up on the prep floor. It's time for me to go freelance. I was going to take the test in the union in New York. I was all geared up with Mark Hirschfeld at that time, who was running the, the camera training class to take the test. There's like all these different cameras. There's you know, Airy 3, it was like very easy back then. Film cameras, very easy <laughs> to take the test. And you go there. Compared to today where... Yeah, you, know, you had to actually take a film test. You had to actually take a camera test to get in the union. I mean, how could you, who would even set up the camera test today? There's too they, many goddamn cameras. And like, they, yeah. Here's the GoPro, here's here's the F65, you know. Very, yeah. You'll, you'll, here's 40 different cameras and you have to know everything about all of them. I know, and I wonder, I don't even know if they still do that, but I, I was already had an appointment to take the test mm-hmm. with uh, Mark. I met with Sol Negrin, you know, of the local 600 chapter up there. And it just flipped over to local 600 maybe a year or two prior. And once I heard LA, I'm all like, I know two people. And it's Eric Schmidt and Ralph Boda and his son. And those are the only two people I knew when I came to LA. Mm-hmm. And I had already met so many camera assistants and operators in New York. But I knew LA was the place to be. Yeah. This is where movies happened. And as romantic as an idea is to be in New York, I just knew that LA was the place. So I had two phone numbers. I called Eric and I called Paul Boda and Ralph and his team. So within two months of being here, I ended up loading two commercials with Ralph and Paul in New York. So when I called Paul, I said, hey, I'm I'm moving to LA. He said, look me up. I called him up and he brought me on a movie with his father, The Secret Lives of Girls. Mm -hmm. And it was Linda Hamilton, Eugene Levy. It's my very first movie. It was non-union and ended up flipping and going union. And when you have someone that's ASC shooting an indie movie, he's going to bring all his top guys. And I was able to learn a lot and to be grafted in very fast. And it, did that get you into the... It got me into the union. Nice. Within like two, being here for two months. Something that's always interested me about the camera world, because in a lot of other departments, I mean, I guess art department is similar in a, in a sense. But like, if you're a director, you're a director. There's no hierarchy to get to the top. And I've known DPs who basically, well, actually like Ilya and I had a friend who unfortunately died in a plane crash years ago, Neil Fredericks. But I remember Neil, he just showed up in LA and he's like, I'm a DP. Sometimes he would operate for other people. And he basically accepted that he would work on smaller stuff and build up, but he only DP'd. And then the other route, and a lot of great DPs have gone that way, is either through the electrical department or through the camera department or whatever. And they've gone from company electric to gaffer to operator to DP or through the camera department, you know, second AC, camera PA to second AC to first AC to operator. What are your thoughts about that? Do you think if you knew that you wanted to be a DP, 
when you were starting, would you have started just shooting stuff? Or do you think that you get enough of a benefit, not just professionally, but working your way up the way that you have? You raise a very good question because there was a point where I thought I wanted to be a war cameraman. Mm -hmm. And then I started going through the process of working on these jobs and knowing that there was a camera team. So at some point, which you're raising a very good question, and which I hope to explore later in my own time, is <laughs> to figure out at what point did I decide being happy as an assistant? Because when I became film loader, I was happy I was to be where I was at. At some point in that process, I had no aspirations to be DP in movie business. Yeah. I just was getting trained and only saw my position for what it was to learn mm -hmm. and to excel. So when I was film loader, I wanted to be the, the best at only that. And it, it even happened with me when I was at Taco Bell, I, when I was like working the fry cook, I wanted to be the fastest fry cook in mm -hmm. Taco Bell. I wanted to fry like two, this probably sounds so cheap, hopefully it gets edited out, but I wanted to be <laughs> the fastest and the best. So when I went, and I don't know if it's competitive nature or what it is, but when I became film loader, I wanted to be like the best film loader, mm -hmm. the fastest, the most efficient. I had steps counted from the truck to the set. I had, how can I shave off 80 steps down to like 25 steps? Well, you just move the darn camera truck. Yeah. Or you just bring your loading tent in the hallway. I wanted to like make it efficient, like ultra efficient of film loading. You see? So there was always this challenge of like, trying to make it like perfect. What happened was I started to realize, and it didn't take me long in this town to figure out there's many different levels in camera department. Yeah. I might get in trouble for saying this, but there's some guys who just stay in the TV. At that time, that, it's not so much the case now. Now it's opened up a bit, but all the big movies, they still have the same top tier guys. Yeah. For the most part, you had guys, so I always viewed it like a bus. You know, a but like a bus stop. Don't want it. You know, get out. It's the music video world. I have an opportunity to like really stay busy in music videos, but as an assistant, eh, I'll get on, stay a little bit longer. Oh, here's TV. Should I get off here and just make a life home here? No, I want to work on movies. It wasn't even so much a decision. That's just the the course it took. My first first time here, I worked on movies, so I only focused on the position I saw. It wasn't until much later, when I was a key second assistant on Spider-Man Three. Mm -hmm. Two things happened. I have a very unique situation of being in the camera department, meaning I hooked up with the world of making movies, camera department, loader, second, mm -hmm. big movies, and I end up meeting a commercial documentary cameraman. Okay, so this is where the two worlds collide. I meet Scott Duncan, the cinematographer, who is like, as far as he's my mentor, he's my, I'm such a fan of his, but I was his assistant for 10 years. Now, I ended up traveling the world with him, and he comes from a stills background and has a way of working that is now slowly becoming the process of the way many people work now. He was already doing it, but with film cameras. Now, this style that which I speak of is having four to five cameras in your arsenal. Mm -hmm. This is what Canon has almost become with the 5Ds and 70s. Now you grab a lens, a 500, you have a body. You grab in the lens and it has a body attached. You roll out, you just grab another camera. That's the way he worked, but with film cameras. The yeah. Minima, the SR, the Prod, the 435, the Airy 3, the Photosonics. Those are all those cameras that we used to travel with, by the way. So it was only me. It was like a rental house, but out in the middle of the jungle. Mm -hmm. So I was in that world. And it was that part of the process where I saw that you can be a cameraman different from the way Hollywood was. Yeah.
So I ended up traveling out of the country for my first gig ever, and it was Survivor. It's still within the first year and ish, and so me being here in LA. I get a job to go on Survivor, but to, to me, it's like, you know, I say Survivor comes loaded, you know what that is. But when I was hired, I worked with him on a sports job. So I thought we were going to do a sports shoot because the director was from NBC Sports. Mm-hmm. So we were there to go shoot. And then all of a sudden, they're telling me to hide under the boat. There's a helicopter coming. I, you know, I'm loading mags. And people were jumping off the boat. We're in, uh, in Borneo overseas. So we're shooting in the jungle. Then after that, we go to Africa and Kenya. Mm-hmm. And in Kenya, this is where everything comes together. No, I'm sorry. My second time on the country is to Mozambique. I get my first, technically, well, I worked on Annie. It was a Disney thing. But this was like my first big movie was Ali. Yeah. Or let's just say I, I worked on Ali as the film loader. And we go to Mozambique. So it was my second time out of the country. And I discover a thing called slum cinema or video hall. In the slums, people have their own businesses. Some people braid hair, cut hair, sell cigarettes. But there's a thing called a little movie theater where they parked our camera truck, where Will Smith is running through the, the slums. You know, mm-hmm. he's, he's coming to Africa. He's going to fight. And this is where Will Smith is running. This is where Muhammad Ali is like, this is where I connect with my African roots. They're rooting for me. I'm going to beat. I'm going to win this fight. Now, the whole world, whole Hollywood comes into the slum. They park our camera truck. Right outside our camera truck is the slum cinema, a chalkboard with three showtimes of movies. Yeah. And these are movies, at that time, it was 2000. So they park our truck by the this video hall, and they're playing the worst movies ever. And I'm thinking to myself, this is like a very magical moment because it's an intersection of what we do. It's an intersection of the killing fields. It's an intersection of everything. The world cinema, classes, everything is slowly coming together. In hindsight, I could say this, but at that time, it was like I was giving little short ends. First of all, Michael Mann doesn't shoot short ends, so I had a ton of short ends, so it didn't matter. Sorry, <laughs> producers, if you're listening. But I was giving away 200-foot short ends to the kids, and they were running around with film cores, and the film was like running in the air, like just a magic, <laughs> magical African sunset, yeah. the dust, and everything was like, it was very divine, very like... It's such a great, great experience to be a part of this movie making process. Today they'd be throwing CF cards in the air. It wouldn't be nearly <laughs> as magical. Not at all. But the slum cinema really stuck with me because I was saying, why are they watching these bad shows? And they were like these bad Charles Bronson machine gun like type death. There's nothing but death of of shows. Nothing encouraging, nothing relevant for African kids. So I had that idea, I had that experience. Then I, I go to back to the States and I end up getting a call two months later to, get, to go back, where else? Guess, Kenya, mm-hmm. Africa. So the very third country I went to was Kenya, back again. So first job, Thailand, this job, Mozambique, third job, Kenya. So we fly back and it was Survivor 3. Now- What was the Thailand job? The Thailand was also Survivor. Oh, okay. Survivor 1, which no one ever even heard of, and then it, it became huge. And mm-hmm. then I got called to work on that movie with Michael Mann, uh, with the, their team, with Emmanuel Lubeski and, and the awesome camera team. And then I come back to do what is now becoming reality TV. But we were shooting film when I worked on Survivor. That's crazy. They were shooting film on Survivor? No, just the DP I was working with. That's Was nuts. shooting film. The opening of Survivor is only shot on film. When you see the slow-mo, them coming out of the water. You I, see guess, the, I guess it would have to be. When you see the monkey looking at the camera, that's, that's all 
film for the open title sequence. I, it never would have even occurred to me that you would shoot any part of a reality show on film, but that's, yeah. that's awesome. To this day, they still shoot film. Really? Yes. If you watch the opening of Survivor, the music title sequence in the opening, all the aerials, 8mm fisheye, 16mm, 35 is all film. Wow. I did 17 seasons as a camera assistant working under Scott Duncan shooting film on these things. We only go there for 10 days. We don't shoot reality. We shoot the portraits. You see them hanging from a tree. Yeah. They're posing. They see them slow-mo running through an obstacle course at 120 frames. So now I'm here in Kenya. I see more slum cinemas again. And then it occurs to me like, wow, I want to make films for these kids in the slum. I want to make films that are actually they can respond to with their own characters, their own language. Mark Burnett comes to the table. There was no like social justice part of it or anything to do to make good on it. Think think back on the killing fields, right? Mm -hmm. Shine a light, do something, you know, your career. There's an intersection where there's truth. There's an intersection there with your job and where you are and finding out what the real situation is. So we're there, I have an idea. I meet somebody in the business there. He's like, actually making films how to wash your hands and cleanliness and like you know how you get disease and there's actually a film so after I do 10 days oh actually I did a two week maybe three week safari driving around a Land Rover and Mark Burnett comes to our table like I want you guys to shoot a little film about AIDS awareness to the kids something we can leave behind and he tells us that but we never do it but the idea that he told me that there's AIDS here shoot film let them know something we can leave behind, slum cinemas, Mozambique. I'm thinking like, wow, maybe I could do this on my own and come back. So my wife and I had this idea because she ended up showing up. So we see this and we're like, maybe we can do this. Films for orphans. But at that time, it was only everything was film. There was no mm -hmm. digital. So I come back to Hollywood and I just start staying really busy, loading and seconding. I'm working on flight plan. After Ali, I work on anger management. I can start working with amazing DPs. Emmanuel Lubeski, Ali, uh, Robert Ellswit, Jilly, Donald McAlpine, Anger Management, Flight Plan, Florian Bauhaus. It, it just goes on and on and all these big DPs. So this whole process, you know, like you said, going up the ranks of going from loader to second, even pulling focus on some shots. This is where it all intersects because on Spider-Man 3, I was the key second. Had I carried five cameras on that. Wow. Uh, we carry the 235. We carried two Panaflexes, lightweight or high speed. We had two Vista Visions. It was quite the package. I'm key second. So I'm in charge of all the equipment. You can't lose anything. You're in charge. Everything's still film. But going from Ali, I was introduced to digital. Then we, I helped out on the collateral test. So I knew I saw digital like surfacing its head, but I could never do the Films for Orphans project because we never had the right camera or the right tool for the job. So finally on Spider-Man, I end up losing my son. I had a son, he was born early, he passed away. Oh, I'm sorry. But I was super stressed during Spider-Man 3 uh, doing the job that there was an overwhelming compassion saying, why am I so stressed out doing these camera jobs? Or like, am I worried about it? something bigger to life? So my wife and I decided to go do something bigger with the camera. And that seems to be the theme. Gonna go make films for orphans. So we have a plan, sell my house, get out of the union, go be freelance camera guy, go shoot films for orphans. So Panavision immediately gave me F900. Showed the very next day after a few days or maybe a week after Spider-Man 3, Jim Radabush at Panavision Woodland Hills gives mm -hmm. me an F900 package. 
shows up to my house in the living room and I was like, oh my gosh, I gotta start shooting. So that wasn't until that point that I decided to start shooting is to go shoot films for orphans in Africa. Otherwise, mm -hmm. I was making good money. I was in the union. I was totally content with the big profile type movies I was working on. I was working with amazing camera teams, working with Dean Cundy, Bill Pope, all these guys. I didn't even think I was gonna be moving up to DP in that those departments. What changed was its accessibility of digital. So the F900, the Viper, the those cameras at the time became more tangible. I mean, I did shoot film too, but it became very expensive to process. Yeah. So by having amazing support from Panavision and now almost, I mean, I have a lot of support from so many camera vendors here. It just became tangible where I can actually see the fruit of shooting rather than keeping it in the fridge. Mm -hmm. I love film and I plan on still shooting film and I do shoot film, but it just became just more tangible to me. It didn't, I mean, I, I spent all my time learning film and the way it is and the pricelessness of it and the look of it and working under amazing cameramen. But it wasn't until that point where I started realizing that I can go out and shoot too. And I started shooting and then things just started building up until I had a reel. I went to Africa with my reel and ended up shooting. About how many years ago do you make this move where you're 2006. Gonna... So 2006, so seven years ago. 2006 or 2007, I, it kind of blurs together. So, But I had to start shooting, yes. You started shooting in LA or you started shooting? In LA. Okay, and building up a reel to take it overseas. To get experience to go shoot films for orphans, yeah. So you've worked with most of the best known rogues gallery of the most famous cinematographers who've been on the cover of AC and whatever mm -hmm. for the last 10 years. What do you learn mostly as a second AC from these guys that you're able to work into your own work or do you? My conception of a second AC is someone who's not right with the DP very much, but usually on the camera. And it's not that you're not talking to the DP, but like what kind of insights, what kind of work habits, what kind of technique are you picking up? Well, you know, every camera team is different and there's different roles that the sec I mean, pretty much the second AC does exactly the same thing as everyone else, but there's different capacities. There's some assistance that you're a lot more hands-on with the A camera. Um, and there's some assistants where the first likes to do everything on the camera and you're responsible moving the entire camera package from point A to point B, keeping track of everything, all the equipment, you're involved in the blocking. And the way our union is set up and the way the roles are set up is very key because there's a specific reason why you're putting the mark there. And it relates to the entire movie, where the flag goes, where they set the flag for lighting, the light, everything is so key. So as a second, you're totally engaged in that process. Mm -hmm. Now you can go there and do it without knowing why you're doing it. Yeah. But after you start shooting, you're starting to realize why you do it. So you're one step ahead once that light's moving. So it kind of gives you a one up that you know you better start moving that mark. Yeah. For an operator, it's you're setting consistency at that mark. So it's a it's a total team process for the focus puller, for the operator, for the DP lighting, for the gaffer. But the biggest part that really changed and I think transformed for me to be start shooting and working as a cameraman on Spider-Man 3, they had uh, film dailies. Mm -hmm. Now this is a new team for me to work with, Bill Pope and their team. But my buddy... Sean Moe was saying, hey, by the way, you need to go to dailies. And normally in our business, lunch is used for eating really good food or taking a nap. Yeah. A little bit of me time, a little bit of quiet time for some people. Yeah. But this was like, he's like, bring your logbook, bring all your logbooks, go to dailies. Now, 
all of a sudden I'm starting to watch daily. This is before, you know, my son passed away, before I started really even try to start shooting. Then I'm watching dailies. I'm watching what we're actually shooting. All of a sudden it's like, it's hitting me. It's like, we're seeing what we shot. I'm seeing dailies. I'm hearing Sam Raimi talk about a scene. I'm hearing the DP talk to the operators about certain things, what to do better. I am like a fly on a wall. And first of all, I didn't know it was so precious because film dailies is almost done with. Yeah. It was an amazing opportunity to get that kind of insight, which you never see the fruit. I mean, there's a whole chain of where things go through um, before it gets to the, the audience. And so to hear that dialogue, as seeing film run across a projector in real time with the, yesterday's work, I can remember that we put up a certain kind of muslin for the bounce or the, you know, the lighting. So immediately it was hands-on learning about lighting and seeing the results of us shooting even though it was like a one light i'm sure or something yeah yeah you know but still you can see like real time and which is amazing experience because in in many ways digital you know yes you have real time response you hit playback but this is something special because you're seeing on a movie projector yeah yeah you're seeing it big too you're seeing it big and that i mean we had that on Bolivian as well. I mean, we had digital projectors and but film. You there was no monitors for you to look at. At least on on digital movies, you can go look at a really nice monitor and kind of get an yeah, idea. Yeah. But film is magical because you go to see the, the results. Yeah, you've, even the best video assist still looks like garbage usually. Like it, yes, it still is on film. It's yeah. just a, it's the best video assist is just a decent reference of what the real thing is going to yes. look like. That's when things started to really resonate and having decided to start shooting and then we had many reshoots uh still went to film dailies and i'll be forever grateful for the camera team of uh bill pope's crew for allowing us and as i slowly start to figure out even on fast and furious and four with amir mokri and Mm -hmm. on oblivion or i worked a little bit on django even going to those dailies it's always been if i can go at the end of the night you're dirt tired yeah dp is always going like what the DP is still going, even though he shoots all day, he's going to dailies. To the dailies, yeah. Yeah, so why wouldn't it be any different for me, even as an assistant? So they were cool having you show up at the dailies? Totally cool. You don't realize how open it is uh, until you, you have to be in a camera department, yeah. I, I suppose. And, and it, it, it just also shows the what this business is about, this is a relationship. I think it's very symbolic that it's about you're there with the DP, you're there with the production designer, whoever. They're there together in the process of watching it together. And that's yeah. something I hope we can figure out how to do more of and continue that tradition. No, you should do it. I mean, it, it, it's so beneficial because you're still there. You're still making it. If you, if a mistake was made, you can fix it. Or if yes, if the idea that that's you're right. trying to get it across is not coming across, you can you can work harder to get it across. Yeah. And the funnest dailies was a, hands down the Quentin Tarantino Django going in on that. I can imagine that would be like a laughing. Party. The bigger the blood splatter, the more laughs you hear. <laughs> it was just priceless. Oh, uh, man. But yes, that's something I hope takes place. Maybe if you guys out there in post-world can kind of smooth that out a little bit. Um, (laughs) It's a tradition I think we should keep going because I also now that, you know, I'm shooting now and getting those DVDs, going to hotel room, you just, it's a lot, it's very easy to forego. But if you make arrangements to have your team watch it together and make it fun and and Well, it's important though because the stuff is meant to be viewed by a community of people. Like, you know, Mm, the final audience will be a group, it'll be an audience and I do think it's interesting to, you know, if something it's harder to tell if something's working, if you're watching it by yourself, but if you're watching it with other people, you can tell, I mean, like, you know, you'll screen rough cuts for a small group of people rather than taking it to people one-on-one and you know, you, you can tell if it's working and I don't think dailies are any different and you've got the most sympathetic audience you could ever have the people who want it to be great. 
Exactly. And I think that tradition is very key and it's something that hopefully won't fade away and hopefully we can figure out how to do it better. But that is so, I think so. I think that was probably the most instrumental formation for me to start working as a cameraman was having that insight of going to dailies. You're tired. You remember what you shot the day before, but you, you know, we had the notes. I knew what lens we used. I knew, I knew what lighting we was. Yeah. It was fresh, fresh in your head and you get to see the fruit of your labor. Well, and also it keeps you in the continuity of it a little bit more too, because you know, when you're shooting a movie, you're shooting page seven through 13 today and tomorrow you're shooting pages 90 through 90, you know, and it's hard to keep it all in your head at once. But when you have a daily screening, you can see, you get a sense of like, oh, okay, there's more to this than just this stuff we did today. It kind of all sticks in your head a little bit better. Were there any DPs in particular whose work habit or whose style inspired you as a cameraman yourself? Are there people whose work you point to as an inspiration for what you're doing now? I basically took pieces from many different levels within the camera department. So it can be from a focus puller to an operator to DP. I think I wised up pretty early on that it's about the camera team. You gotta have, I mean, you're built around great teams and Mm -hmm. having good teams. And I think early on it's like people, if they like your personality, make a good fit, work hard. That's not to discount the DP signature lighting. Of course they have that. Yeah. Um, But it's a way to achieve the, the DP's vision, what he brings to it, the director. Having already been a fan of uh, Chivo, Emmanuel Lebeski, you know, he shot Sleepy Hollow, he shot Children of Men. I was already a fan of his. It's like when I saw certain things, it was like, oh my gosh, I would like to work with that cameraman. Like mm-hmm. when I, the, the whole Matrix thing with the multiple camera thing yeah, and yeah. the way the Matrix was shot, I was like, I want to work with that DP. Who is it? It's Bill Pope. Oh, wow. Maybe I can actually work with him. Yes, it happened twice with Chivo. I wanted to work with him, and I ended up working with him. And Bill Pope, uh, just from that one technique, The Matrix, The Matrix was like, I just loved, I just loved that movie, the way it looked, the story, the whole film, the whole process. Once I was on the camera team, it was all about the team and how to like best work as a team. So I, I pulled away from having conversations with the operator. The biggest thing that I walked away with and understanding now that I'm shooting and now that I'm also taking guys under my wing and building crew is the, and we're going back to tradition, not to be nostalgic, but to go under the role of the classic apprenticeship that we had in Hollywood. Yeah. What I find now is the new generation of kids coming in feeling empowered by having knowledge, not experience. You can get knowledge. Things become very immediate for let's say the data loader who knows how to download a file, yeah. knows how to do everything. So they come in equipped of not having us to teach them, where you have a seasoned guy who worked in the business, knows how to do, run the set, watch the set, know the framework of the set. Now you're having kids come in that are equally on par with knowledge base of workflow file-based systems. They don't really have the experience. But what I had the privilege to come under was the apprenticeship where you knew what seat to sit on on the van, you knew how to go get the coffees, you you knew all these things where you knew, I I tell the guys we're camera PAs, yes, you're out of film school, yes, you're grabbing coffee, making hamburgers at the hamburger stand, yes, you're doing all this for the camera department. Don't think it's beneath you, think of it as a way to getting to know this business, it's all about relationships. Because then after a while, just because you know that the first AC likes a specific mint 
specific brand, you know what he likes and dislikes. You be attuned to their needs. Now, once you become the loader, they have different needs of how they like the mag, how they like their equipment, how they, you're, you're tuning yourself to what they, and you talked a lot about philosophy and this is where this comes in. You learn their physical needs. You learn if you're feeling thirsty, maybe they're thirsty. You're learning these things so where you can be one step of ahead. Maybe they will never notice. Maybe they'll ever never recognize that. But giving them the things that they like for their front box, Altoids, keeping that stocked, all the basic things you can do as a camera PA, you're knowing what people like, how pe- how the second AC likes the tape cut or how she likes the roll set up on the cart or he likes his carts cleaned and these little things, you know what their personal needs are. You start learning these things every step of the way. Second AC starts knowing what the first AC needs. He likes this eyepiece done this way. He likes no leveler eyepiece, blah, blah, blah. It's, it's still the same idea. Yeah, is, yeah, whether it's a mint or you know, it's, it, I just hope it doesn't come out cheesy on the podcast. But no, no. But you start having a relationship, and this is what this business is about: is relationship. So once you get to the part where you're operating, then you start watching the actor. Then you start thinking about how the actor's acting off the story or on the story, if they're a method actor. So all this along the chain of working in the camera department, you can be grounded into this philosophy of studying people, the way they do things, the way they like things. That, that's the problem I find lacking. And it's all about the gear. It's all about, it's not, it's about the story. It's cliches it is. And I would hear that too. I'm like, oh yeah, yeah you're one of those. I get, I get that sometimes, you're one of those. But it's true. It's the camera is an extension to tell the story. Yeah. And it's a response based off the energy in the room, what the actor is doing the energy of the script. And for me to go through those steps from loader, I never was camera P, I went straight into loading. But going through those those, those steps, it kind of, I look back on it, I'm like, wow, I really did learn a lot. It really paid off to pay attention and to try to do the best I could at a specific thing and to know about all the film stocks and like just knowing the response. And so it goes technically and it also goes on a very personal level. Because then you, you, you still have to deal with actors as a camera operator. You have to deal with actors. You have to deal with personalities. You have to know what they like. You have to know what the director likes. You have to translate that and execute it. Mm-hmm. So if you're out of film school and you're having to clean the camera truck, well, you're going to know how the, they like the camera truck. You're going to figure out r- right away how they want things done. Yeah, yeah. So that there is a very deep personal part of it. And if you can embrace that, if you can look at it and say, it's not beneath me and I'm going to do it, then those are the guys you're going to pick to be going the fire with. The guys who actually responded well to you, that know your needs, you're going to be able to go on location and say, this guy's going to take care of me. This guy's going to be able to order what I need or get what Absolutely. I need and be dependent upon. And be two steps ahead of what you want and, and know yes. when it gets hot, he wants water, when it gets whatever, you know. Yeah, and all those little things add up. And then eventually, as a cameraman in that apprenticeship, you're able to still come underneath that. So I feel like all the other cameramen come up, came up to different ways. They just started shooting, in, I think, indies, which like was Dean Cundy yeah. right away. He just... He shot things in the big studio things. And so he came from a very like awesome period of time in cinema where he, you know, did his own thing and then slowly got in. And then you have some guys who were totally in the mix through the studio system, bumping up the operator, yeah. MP, and you have those guys too. I feel like right now I'm in the best of both because digital has offered me a chance to shoot. So taking away, yeah, there's definitely some certain things I took away from lighting from Emmanuel Lubeski, certain things I took away from 
different DPs like Bill Pope. There's like a big bag of things that I've learned in terms of lighting and in terms of leadership. Maybe some of it, you know, some do's and don'ts even. Yeah. And, and way to run a team, how to be encouraging. Like my commercial camera guy, I worked with Scott Duncan. How to be encouraging, making everyone feel part of the team, getting so much out of the image and making you just so many different levels. So it, it goes on beyond lighting. It goes beyond lensing. A lot of it is just learning to, you know, it's a crew. It's a film crew thing. It's a, it's a, you spend time together. You go through the jungle together. You want to make sure that you got the right team in place. I, I just feel very blessed uh, to know these different types of styles of shooting, like watching a mirror, like a mirror was amazing to watch work. Even it was Fast and Furious. It was like a movie that we were actually shooting in practical locations and doing practical lighting. It wasn't I mean? Yeah, we had some big green screen on the cars, and like we had yeah. a lot of lot of money shooting stage and shooting all the car effects. But for the most part, a lot of the, those with location work in the city, in Mexico, and watching him doing practical lighting. Because before that, I was working on Spider Man. I did some of Spider Man Two and Spider Man Three, and you walk into a stage full of green screen. And I would be like, as a camera, as me starting to shoot, I would never have this opportunity to to light like this. Yeah, yeah. It was not practical. So when I went to Fast and Furious, it was just like, oh my gosh, this is great. I get to see somebody actually, you know, DP holding the bounce board, making pretend like reflections are going through the room in <laughs> a diner good. sequence. Yeah, yeah. Now that I know that I started shooting, it's like shooting is very much the easy part. It's dealing with the producers, dealing with how to come in on budget, fighting for the, your battles, picking your battles. All that stuff has been quite an eye-opener because you think the grass is greener on the other side. It's actually a lot more phone calls during the day before the shoot, whereas when you're an assistant, you show up, you do your job, you're done. Oh, yeah. With shooting, it's like nonstop, nonstop situations and questions and talking and so forth. So Yeah, yeah, and figuring it all out ahead of time. Can you give me an example of the kinds of battles that you have to pick when you're shooting? A lot of it, and it's weird because when I went and did my, my own personal film in Africa, in Kenya, doing a kid's show, I was doing a, shooting a concept. I, I wanted to basically shoot Sesame Street in Kenya, but mm -hmm. have my own brand of, my wife and I were producing it. We wanted to have our own show for the Kenyans to do our own kid's show that they can call their own in their language, their culture, something relevant for them. And as I was doing the budget, and I think that really helped me now as a cameraman, is to figure out like, where can I slice the budget? Like, I'm very sensitive now to budgets. I'm oh, very yeah. much like, where can I possibly save more money? And I don't know why it happens, but even as favoring grip and lighting, it always comes to grip and lighting to cut guys from there, oh, cut yeah. guys from camera. And we constantly take a hit of having to shave people off thinking we can do it. And that is like, I mean, you really have to like look at every single department and say, where can we save money? Where can we, and it, it, somehow as a default, it's always GE, G&E and camera. And when I kept looking at the paper, I'm all like, but this is my people. This is like my <laughs> guys. How can I keep falling on Because that? you can get away without it because you can, you, because it's the only thing where it's like, yeah, if you have five guys, that's awesome. But four guys can get the job done. You know, it's, it's unfortunate. Yeah, well, I wasn't even, I wish I was at those numbers, but yes, it is unfortunate. And it's, uh, you know, and, and here we have clear lines here with GNA. In Kenya, it's a little bit more on the British system mm -hmm. where you have the camera grip who sets up the, you know, camera movement and the grip, and they're not on an American system. So there's definitely some wiggle room. But it mostly, it, it all, it's, it's been lately 
the idea of shooting with no lights, mm -hmm. but it's slowly happening, shooting with no lights, but it's not for every script and it's not for every, so mostly it's figuring out how to make the most with the little money you have, at least the, where I'm at now. And, and what's the name of this show, by the way? Uh, my show? Yeah. Oh, my show was, uh, this is Africa. Uh huh. But that was my personal shoot. And how can, can people find it online anywhere? No, nah, nowhere online. It was a pilot we pitched out to World Vision, Compassion, different organizations to use as a fundraising tool. Mm -hmm. Maybe they can make more episodes and they can uh, raise more money for their organization. Mm -hmm. Much like Tom's shoes, buy a shoe, give a shoe to a kid in a poor area. Yeah, yeah. Buy an episode, give an episode to a kid in the slums. At least that was the... Uh, the concept that door never opened up what did open up in kenya was opportunities because right now there's a digital renaissance happening in in many countries with canon 5ds 7ds people started shooting their tv shows and making pilots this is in africa like getting the camera first hand you don't have to send the film to the lab so there's a yeah. full-blown digital renaissance happening even even i was just in india uh, i was there for an interview uh, to shoot a movie mm -hmm. and india is flipping to digital i mean they're already there pretty much but the black magic camera they're shooting their first movie with the black magic oh nice and they actually i walk into the room they put one chair on one side of the room and they line up eight chairs on the other side of the room and basically i had like q a about digital and all technical questions but right away i started to figure out what was happening the power of digital filmmaking is in the hands of a new generation and basically what I got from that meeting, them asking me technical questions, how to make movies, from my experience in digital, they don't want to shoot the normal Indian formula of filmmaking, which means shooting with no sound. They want to shoot with sound. So they're breaking rules. They have black magic, they're trying to shoot a movie, indie movie, and they want to shoot sound, which is, you know, groundbreaking. You know, they're not gonna shoot a, a song and dance number, they're not gonna shoot they actually want to tell a story and with practical sound. So they have a black magic camera coming in. They're trying to figure out solutions for, I mean, for it, which is very fitting where I am. Yeah. But they're asking me like all these tips technically, but what right away the writing was on the wall. These guys are like equipping themselves to go do an indie movie off the Indian studio system and telling their own stories. And they want it to be on a very classic kind of cinema kind of way. We think of a lot of these digital cameras like the 5D, 7D, whatever, T2i, T5i, whatever we're up to now, Blackmagic, whatever. It's been a disruptive technology in a good way for a lot of empowering a lot of independent filmmakers in America. But really, in the first world, we could have gotten somehow a way to do this. But these cameras, from what I'm gathering from what you're telling me, are getting the power... Uh, the, it makes it sound like they're the X-Men, but the power of filmmaking, <laughs> you know, in, in, into the into the furthest corners of the world, yeah. into the hands of people who could never have afforded it. And they're learning how to, yes. how, they're learning the communication skills. Exactly. They, I shot the first pilot for Turner, made for Africans in the Middle East. I shot their first TV pilot, which is like a one hour episodic TV pilot. I was the DP, DOP, they say there. The thing is my data manager came from I was told from the slum they hired him as a PA and then all of a sudden he started staying busy working as a PA from the slums and then started uh, working under the producer and then all of a sudden got a you know started learning filmmaking and then started saving money then he ends up buying a 5d or their 7d he ends up buying a Canon camera this is a kid from the slum 
buy, buys a Mac. By the time I, by the time it comes to me, I thought he was just a regular data manager. You know, to me, I'm like, oh, yeah. this kid went to school, blah, blah, blah. No, his backstory was he came from the slum, started working, saved up to buy a Canon camera and a Mac. Now he has his own production company. And this particular guy has his own house with a team of filmmakers from the slum. They're, they're shooting music videos, shooting little uh, industrial things in Kenya. And even this one guy who's my data manager has his own personal assistant. Nice. Just like the producer would have a personal assistant, he has his own personal assistant yeah. so that he keeps on staff. So when he's data manager, he's she's not around or he or whoever it is. But in his day-to-day life, he has his own production company. This technology is changing lives for people to tell stories and to make money off of it and to have a craft and have a skill set. So this is what I'm finding after living in Kenya um, for a little bit and shooting and and meeting people that this is life-changing stuff here. I mean, this is like you're, you're, you're taking cameras around and you're documenting and you're shining light in areas of human trafficking and yeah, yeah. documentaries, like more stories are being told, but also a lot of bad habits are being set up too, you know, about filmmaking. But, you know, what is bad habits really? I mean, you're making mistakes, you're learning, you're growing. Uh, you know, you're double exposing film, whoops, but oh, you have a cool effect. So what are the bad habits? Exactly. We're, we're really at a, a transition because we the studios have a specific way of shooting, the camera department has a certain way of working. But the thing that is overall, what I find is the abuse of, not abuse of producers, but the, just the budget, to just trying to, you know, you want to tell a story and the budget's so tight. So how do you make yeah. it happen? And you, everyone has different methods and ideas to go about it. And um, there's, you know, all around the world, there's many different types of producers. And, um, you know, here in America, there's certain kinds and there's like, I mean, it's interesting to see what's going to happen these next few years with, uh, with these stories and how they're being showcased. There's talks of having slums have their own TV channels with knowledge and to do things of, uh, getting knowledge across to people. But then you can have a whole bunch of other mindless, uh, types of of entertainment it's probably going to be a lot of that no matter what you do but but at the same time i don't know that anyone would think it's a bad thing that people in the furthest reaches of the world who never had access to cinema technology who could never tell their stories like i th- i think it is obvious and inevitable that one of the great world filmmakers of the next generation is going to come out of some place like this and blow people's minds because they're going to make films that no one's expecting. Yes, because if you look back on the if you look back in the, the early times where the trade routes were and the paintings were going through and the trade routes, yeah. right now it's open. It's a new style. It's a new style of living. You're be able fiber optics. You're able to pump your artwork to yeah. many through. So you're, those channels of distribution are really opening up for those guys to tell their story. Yeah, the hard and, part is always curation. Like, how do you get anyone to notice? You? How do you get someone whose voice is bigger than yours to notice yours? Because if you put a film on YouTube, it's like a drop of water in the ocean on Europa, as far as most of us are concerned. Yeah. So how do you get somebody to point people and go like, holy shit, this kid from a slum in Kenya made this film that has universal implications that can touch us here, can move people. And then this person ends up, my fictional person ends up at Cannes or whatever, you know, and, and ends up being considered a f- sort, sort of like what Robert Rodriguez did, I think, for independent cinema in America in the 80s and 90s, well, mostly 90s. Here's a guy, and Kevin Smith to a degree too, where somebody just picks up a camera and just goes out and makes a film and suddenly they, ha- they have a voice that's reaching people. 
but that anyone can do that today. It, it's a little, to, to me, it, it, it's sometimes a little paralyzing because it's like, well, how do you make something that could even compete in that? You know, how do you, how do you do that? But somebody who isn't like trying to impress people in Hollywood and doesn't give a shit about this stuff yeah. is, is going to be the one that, that can bust through that, those doors, yeah. I think. Yeah. And then there's still the issue of piracy. Africa is very, has very problematic with piracy. Yeah. They will watch pirate movies, but then when it comes to their own film, they want to sell it and make money. Yeah. So it's, it's a very tough, but that's out here too. I know, I know plenty of people who are, who work in the business and who bit torrent movies. And I'm like, how can you do that? You're hurting yourself. Going back to Kenya is like, I was able to try to maintain that apprenticeship. If you look at the people that worked under, I mean, I still account for it as part of their tradition, the way we worked, you know, loader, second, yeah. having a camera department proper, having that legacy. So when I go back there is to try to teach or show them techniques or but for the most part they're doing it there they're they're making movies they don't need any Hollywood <laughs> person to tell them otherwise but they're actually making movies the way they see fit and the way they tell stories certainly every street corner has predominantly American movies and mm-hmm. that's something I noticed along the way because having gone to Kenya it's the third country I mentioned I've already been to 45 different countries oh wow in that span so taking the world cinema classes taking all that it's all happened I've, you lived it yeah I've been all over the place with it either as a now well now I'm shoot now I'm shooting well now um, now you locations well and you've relocated over there correct I'm semi-based in Nairobi yes mm-hmm. I I have some possible jobs coming up there I also have uh, a movie I'm shooting in India uh, coming up and a movie in Ireland at the end of the year. So I, I'm up for maybe four movies, four indie movies right now as we speak. If, mm-hmm. if in an in indie world, getting financing is very difficult. You read the script, you love it, sign on, and you're slated to shoot a movie. When the funding comes in, they pick different actors, things change. But it's been a very interesting quest to be in this, this time period of independent filmmaking because after working on 20 movies, in a studio as an assistant and now I'm sh- shooting indie movies uh, it's two two different worlds but I still try to bring the same sensibility of the camera team there's certain trends that are happening now you know pulling focus off monitors uh, remote systems is a very big component now um, so I still try to bring those elements to the shoots mm-hmm. remote iris remote uh, systems at cheap cost as I'm on a big Hollywood set if I'm an assistant you know, I, I will mention rental houses they never heard of. Like there's a certain breed of camera people out there that don't even know who are these other new, there's so many new rental houses now, but there's only the mainstay that they know that they heard of Claremont, Keslow, they heard, they heard all these places. But there's a whole underground movement of, of indie filmmaking that's taking place. We saw it in the, the mid nineties, late nineties of 16 millimeter made a big surge. Yeah, yeah. And 35 millimeter, the BLs, you know, 535 came out, BLs were a lot more proud you know, a lot more out there and you can shoot indie movies or short ends. And so right now there's a whole like different layers of filmmaking going on. But the biggest thing I find is I see a certain trend that's happening on the big movies with remote focus and remote monitors and looking at like there's so many monitors on set and picking the right kind of monitor. So I'm trying to tailor a certain kind of way of working on an indie set where it still mimics the big set, but still very cost effective yeah so it's been that's been the biggest challenge for me is to you take the big contacts from big movies and try to say hey look get Holly needs a little push here what is what's the tools that we can use to have the same effect maybe it's not a Preston but maybe it's the very zoom remote focus or maybe there's a new remote focus system 
I just want to pull iris. I want to need manual iris. I want to go through the window, back down to the, the roof, to the tarmac, into a taxi, and have wireless video or you know, headsets. Or even on Spider-Man 3, uh, Henry Klein had goggles. The whole in, the beginning of the scene of Spider-Man to, to Sandman was handheld, 235, and he had goggles. And he saw the image from the video tab. And that's how he was able to do that shot all the way from the bank into the sand uh, pit on the truck. Oh, wow. So even then, it was like you have certain guys out there that were kind of ahead of their time, the way they worked. And still, we haven't even explored that opportunity in, in the camera department, wire, the goggles and stuff like that to get certain kind of and shots. And all that stuff exists in affordable forms already. Much, yeah, now it does. It's good times right now with trying to put teams together and indie and big budget let me ask you a couple of questions just about straight up technique. Uh, some of this is just my own curiosity. I, I find that DPs, when I get to talk to them, some of them are way more excited about composition and lensing, and some are way more excited about lighting. And I have yet to find a correlation like people who come up through the lighting department sometimes are more excited about lensing and mm. vice versa. When you're approaching a scene to shoot it, what speaks to you more, the way the lighting or the lensing or both at the yeah. same time, or what are your thoughts? I think there's periods of both. Mm -hmm. Coming up from the camera department is definitely a lack of lighting experience. To me, composition is much more instinct. Mm -hmm. So that there I find a plus. But there's also a whole bunch of do's and don'ts. You've got headroom, you have eye lines. Right now, like there's almost like rules are being broken, but there's still st stuck traditional classic things at work to tell a story with eye lines. Yeah. You just can't, there's certain things you just have to, you just can't cross the line sometimes. Depends what the story is. It's not fit for everything. So what I did was when I... I've been, you know, I, I took the camera out, started shooting, and I didn't call anybody because it was like in the beginning, I'm all like, I could do it all myself. I know mm. how to change lenses. I know how to do iris. I know how to do like light, you know. I just shot in my living room and just started shooting. And I, that's where I was making mistakes and learning, oh, maybe it's too dark. I didn't even think anything about being too dark or too overexposed, or I just lit to what I liked. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think is, uh, was, was nervous at first. It was like, well, what if. I don't know how to light, but basically you just have to light the way you feel like you need to light. Sure, you might not be underexposed, you might be overexposed, but I mean, if you have a little bit of the foundation, you know where you can have wiggle room. But mostly, yes, to translate the director what the director wants, but then there's get risky with it. And I think that's where I learned a lot from different cameramen of being taking risks, you know, riding the low levels or riding, you know, the darks or the highlights and having all these judgment calls and to trust your instinct. So a lot of it has to do with instinct. But my approach, having come from a traditional camera department, I realized early on that I like to work the way we do in Hollywood. Remember I said I want to take a big movie set approach and apply it to an indie. So one of my first, you know, after I shot these first few short films, I ended up, when did I first start using a camera operator? I used it with Michael Cioni. I shot a short for Michael, mm -hmm. who you're familiar with with LiDAR. Of course. I shot a short film with him and we were just buds. I didn't even realize he was even like who he is in the business. He's, a, he's uh, the youngest legend I know. To me, he was just my friend. Yeah. And I, he wanted to shoot a short. And I, yeah, I knew he had muscle and color timing. But it wasn't, I didn't know he was like, had such, was so impre impressionable. But we shot a short film on the Viper. Now, I already shot a short prior to that. And I realized I want to focus on lighting. So let's, let's just do a normal camera department. We have a camera operator first AC, second, and the DIT. Mm -hmm. Let's just do that. I was able to really connect with 
uh, lighting. I found it very easy for me to bring in camera teams and build camera team because that's what I'm a part of. Before, I thought in my head, I can just do it myself. I don't have to hire those guys. I do everything. Yeah, yeah. Lighting, whatever. But then I realized I can't bring in lighting guys and grips to come and work for free. So I began just lighting myself, just going out into risk and bringing in like a PA who knows about lighting and just start lighting myself. And I got really hands-on of seeing what was working, what I liked, and I just lit to what I liked. And what would you say that is? Like, what's what's your aesthetic? Is it more natural? As natural. It- yes, natural. Like, um, I find when you watch a good movie, that's all natural, not overly stylized, just a natural-looking movie. That is so hard to do, is to make it look natural, real. That's, yeah. I'm talking about motivated lighting. You know, you, you pre-establish the light, and then you light to that. Mm-hmm. And I found that to be the funnest part of the process. I ended up embracing lighting out of everything. I thought it would have been composition. It would have been um, telling story. It was lighting, 100% lighting. Again, that answers my question that when you're looking at a scene, the thing that you're excited about is lighting and you're someone who came up through the camera department. Yes, and it was like this new territory for me to be like, oh my gosh, I love lighting. Like that's what was exciting me. Because when, even on Chioni's film, I was lighting the scenes. The sensor was fast enough to use practical lighting. And I did. Th- we did this one scene in the kitchen and I used, we used practical lighting, but I, I took lighting off. It was like a certain point where about like shaping the light and all this stuff I had to learn on my own. Yeah. When it comes to like, everyone's about lighting, but it's about what you're not lighting. What's everyone knows about the script, you're reading the words in the script. You know what the word the words are in the script. The actor's learning the words, but it's what's not said. Yeah, yeah. Also, it's equally as important. And that, to me, what's not said is what's taken the light away. You see? So so when the actor's facial... And I, I watched this on many of the big... You know, some of the... You know, even on big movies when I'm assisting. Because this is still very fresh for me. I'm still up and coming. Cameraman. Yeah. Title. Yeah, at least I say so. Uh, I still watch if certain muscles react or the way they stand in the specific scene without saying any words. Yeah, yeah. Those are very important. I'm sure you understand as a director, it, those are equally as important of what's said. Of course. So for lighting, it's became what's not lit. Mm-hmm. So flagging, so our American system of having the key grip take the light away is very key and very unique compared to the British system of uh, having an electrical department do everything, take cutting light and making light. There's not this clear fraction of two, two people, two ideas, you know, yeah, coming yeah. together and working together to shape and to, to do things. So I don't know what other cameraman would say, but it just became a part where I had to really train myself to start seeing light lighting and to see certain moments of what a specific, uh, if there's a crack in the window, see what that specific light do, does in the bounce and to make it look m- more natural. And I became quite fond of trying to light as natural as, you know, depending on the story. You know, yeah, yeah. the story calls for it but certainly that that to me became the biggest challenge to make it look natural make it look very much like you look you look at the scene you're like oh it must have been easy like, yeah but that was a 12-hour scene we had to make the lighting look matching <laughs> and that's something that i think will be very interesting to see what's going to happen in the future with the future of cameramen that are coming up having not been a part of the film process yeah as they're lighting because i suppose in the early days of film you know the music video guys weren't that respected when they start shooting and they're making mistakes and they're shooting and learning and growing. And so I suppose, you know, a lot of those guys are now shooting big movies. 
that were shooting music videos back then. And show, I'm sure it's a growth process to figure out how what's, these sensors are respond, their skin tones. But I just try not to let all that technical stuff with the camera get in the way. I really have to stick to the story because I think that's what's really going to connect in the end. How do you map out the arc of the visuals that you're going to be creating? Do you think about that at all? I, I only connect in the beginning. I don't try to connect what it's going to look like because it's very easy for me to do. Mm-hmm. Is to be like, well, it's going to look like, uh, you know, Slumdog Millionaires. You know, my favorite movie, it's weird. My, my favorite movies are like almost uniformly the same. It's very interesting. Like City of God. Mm-hmm. Um, Beautiful movie. Yeah. City of God is like probably like one of my top favorite movies. And it's like I can easily like take all my favorite movies and say, oh, this is what it should look like. And it's not fair because I feel like there's still so much more to do. And I, I feel like Chivo you know, Emmanuel Lubezki is always breaking new ground when it comes to styles and uh-huh. looks and feels. What I only look at is emotional beats of what feelings I have towards a specific scene. But really, I just read it for the first pass. I feel like if there is any emotional parts. So I try to only look at emotional responses to see what connects with me in that way. And it can still be like on a TV pilot it can be on whatever because in, in, in each scene there's a certain key what we're trying to say where I'm at now at the level I'm at there's a lot of first time directors first time writers so there's very wordy mm-hmm. things get very wordy and I lose uh, my focus on that when it's very wordy but I try to see what the scene what that specific scene is trying to say so if they have too much words I find the key key beats of what they're trying to say about the character mm-hmm. and it's interesting something I, I didn't foresee as a, as a method for me to watch inside the actor studio oh yeah and as a cameraman that's been one of my little delights to do to help my camera work which i don't know why it, it helps because there's nothing lighting there's not but to, to hear the insides of the way different actors work has been quite valuable for me to take as a at least when it comes to camera operating and to feel the actor and to feel what they're doing and to feel it, it's nothing greater than connect, really connecting with an actor and operating. And you can do it on focus as well when you're a part of the process. So it, something like that, hearing the insides of somebody, how they like to work, mm-hmm. if they're more method, if they're more. So I think there's a lot of that to be said. It's like where you really strip yourself down. What do you think you know? What you what you think cinema is? You just really have to look at the words on the page. I, you hear people say that. You can say, oh, you're one of those or you think that. But it's so true. The, the story has to tell you what it is. And you can tell if, if those emotional beats are there because when you talk to the director, they're going to have camera ideas. That's not the bridge that you're going to find yourself meeting at. The bridge that you're going to connect with the director on is those emotional beats because those are the human beats. And that's what the audience is going to see. So you're on the bridge with the director, I'm there, and the audience is there. So that's the bridge, those emotional beats that you're going to find from the story, from the words and the black ink on the page. So that's where I start. Now, there is a process for me to eventually get to the looks, to get to say, oh, there's a steady cam. But not after I do, after I talk to the director and I go back and see what they, what they see. If I see the same colors, if I see the same palette, do I see the same uh, type of lens? What is the lens see? What's this perspective of the lens? You know, are we observational? Are we inside? Are we doing POVs? There's so many different ways you can go about it. And usually the director is marinating the script. So I'm able to get an idea what they want. And then then we can slowly start slicing through things to make it easier shoot day, ordering specific gear for the shot. And the technical comes very last of the process. Now, I've never shot a romantic comedy. Uh, most of everything I've shot has been drama. 
I suppose there's another craft of comedy. That's something I'm not too familiar with. But when it comes to drama, it's definitely emotional beats, it's human beats, it's real life beats. It's it's finding the specific word on the page that's human that we can all relate to. Because this is a, I definitely, after being in Kenya and being in all these different countries, American Hollywood stories resonate with, with the universal man everywhere. I can see a guy in the jungle in South Pacific rigging up a car battery watching Superman. And they're watching it. They hit the beats, the human beats, you know. You have the weak man becoming the, the you having the weak be the savior. You having, you know, Tobey Maguire becoming the hero, the unlikely guy. It's like these certain type of stories that we like to do, but you know, those cultures across the way definitely have their stories that they like to tell too. More tragic, you know, but this is a business. We don't want yeah. tragics. <laughs> so a, there is a, you know, there's things to be said about storytelling. But I find it's definitely the more, it goes all back to the killing fields. The more that you connect on a human level, you know, you're making a passport, taking a photograph, pressure, time sticking, that tension I connect with. Even as a kid, that pressure. You know, am I gonna cheat on the test today? Am I gonna get caught by my teacher? Am I gonna get caught smoking a cigarette as a kid in middle school? Those emotional beats are there as a kid. All right. So I can only make sense of it now that I'm older and now I'm trying to translate this stuff and break it down and dissect it. Um, but for the most part, it's a growing process. And I think a lot of us cameramen can be blind with budgets and cameras and formats and things. And they're fun to talk about. I can talk about it all day. I, I talk about do. monitors. <laughs> I can talk about lenses. I, can I talk, I about, talk about that stuff way too much. <laughs> I can talk about it. Have you been to the Kubrick exhibit at LACMA? I want to go. <laughs> it's, there's like a giant, you'll love it. There's yeah. like a giant case of his lenses and you're oh, like, wow. you're like looking at it and like, that's the lens he used in the shining. And that's the lens yeah. he used in Barry Lyndon. And like, they have like the point F point seven lens that they used in Barry Lyndon to shoot the mm. dinner scene and stuff like that. Yeah. And it's like, you can geek out about that stuff. But what's great about the Kubrick exhibit is you walk around you're like, this guy hacked the world to tell the stories he wanted mm. to tell. And have been working on Django for a month doing uh, the California, Wyoming portion. I learned a lot. You know, you think, do you, you think there's a system in place and then you go work on a Quentin Tarantino set? Yeah. And that looks completely different. Uh, you know, no cell phones on the set. I've heard about that. You have to put them in a Ziploc baggie. What, what he did essentially is he created a timeless set. I've been on shoots in Senegal on documentaries, the biggest mosque. We're shooting 16 mil. We're going into the mosque barefooted. I'm wearing the full cloth. The only thing that told me I was not in, you know, 2006, 2007, whatever time period it was, was people's cell phones because they were taking pictures. Yeah. They were videotaping. They were taking uh, pictures for their friends, guys shooting the event on their little video cameras. This is in Senegal. You know, this is a pilgrimage, a Muslim pilgrimage. It's the only time I said it was like that told you. Otherwise, if you took away all the electronics, you would be in 1973, you'd be in 1982, 83, 67. You would not know because the attire, the dress, the tradition was all dusty. There's crippled people outside the gates asking for money. There's like traditions you're doing. You're timeless. So what I found on a Quentin Tarantino set is that the fact that he took the cell phones away brought you to a classic uh, set that could have been in 1982. It could have been in 19, you know, uh, somewhere a, a movie set from that time period. Yeah. Because he's shooting film. There's no cell phones. There's no centralized director's chairs. He's not watching monitors. 
He's standing next to the camera with like a little monitor. He's there in the fire, I call it. And what happens is there's no director's chairs. You have a displaced head. So all of a sudden your producers are chilling out with the, the electricians. Producers are scattered. There's no like eight chairs, 10 chairs. No video village. No video village. Displaced. That's great. So you're thinking like, oh my gosh, I'm on like an indie movie. They I couldn't afford a video. Mood. They couldn't afford a video video village, but that's not the case. It's a big budget movie, big actors. He's there in the fire. He's there with the actor. He's right next to the camera. He's here in the camera roll. Seeing that was seeing like seeing a time of situation and his DP was operating. So he was connected to the story. He's operating. There's no operator as much as that's how I like to, I mean, what I've been doing is since we can't afford two operators, I operate a camera and then I have the other operator kind of take more of like the A camera role just so we can do more lighting and he can kind of finesse the A shot. But having seen that, I mean, I know it sounds crazy. It's like I'm saying DP and then I'm working on Django. It's like very present moment, but this is because it's a transition period for me. Yeah. But to see that was a remarkable experience to see that kind of set work because it is possible to strip yourself down, take away the technology, take away your tools and be left with story. What do you have left? You have a camera, yeah, you have actors, you have energy of human touch. That's really smart though, mm -hmm. you know, and his, his stuff is one of a kind. Mm -hmm. The first movie I ever shot was not today. It's about a human trafficking film. It's full blown actors shooting in India, human trafficking, story it's not a documentary you, you normally hear about human trafficking as docos and uh leading up to it uh i had a very good relation I, I still do have a very good relationship with panavision woodland hills all the movies that i worked on they're very much they managed to be a big house but still cater to camera teams mm -hmm. make things for you so i went to them saying i have my first movie it's time to start shooting let me have uh panavision cameras and this, you know, can I get some cameras for free? Blah blah. I try to, you know, I want to make a big look. I want to shoot film. Yeah. Uh, and then I go work as an assistant under Shane Hurlbut. Going onto a set, it's total chaos. Not chaos, like in a chaotic way, but uh, more of a more of a liberating way. Yeah. In terms of uh, many cameras, many choices, your instinct gets better. Your opportunity, the quicker, the 500 mil connected to the camera. So I asked him at that time. He was shooting Act of Valor off and on I said hey I'm shooting uh, my first movie shooting film I'm shooting in India it's running gun location work I go how does it how does the camera blow up to the big screen on the on the 75d he's like oh it's great you know it's great you know it totally blows up totally holds up you should totally do it go Canon and by, and by then I was already I worked on <laughs> Shane I worked with Shane on pickup shots with uh, Mick G on we are Marshall and then I did a whole several host of commercials. So I only knew him as a film guy. And then yeah. I see him here and he's shooting Canon cameras. And we had like 12 of them on one shoot with like every lens. Well, I'd say in a lot of ways, he legitimized that kind of shooting. He, he did. And that's what we were, I was already doing with my buddy, Scott Duncan, the, the cinematographer. But we did with film cameras. Mm -hmm. We were shooting like six time-lapse shots with the Airy 3, the SR, and then also shooting motion and Shane's doing here with uh, uh, digital the same kind of way, but now it's like a uh, you know different kind of. I was already attuned to that kind of thing, but with film. But this was like, oh my gosh, what are these cameras? So then I you know I do some tests, and went to Paul Duclos. I decide to shoot uh, Super Baltar mm -hmm. lenses, 
very risky, very soft lens lenses, very tough for focus. Uh, they don't all match. There's certain inherencies in them that are not uh, equal in terms of color. Some are warmer. Some are, but you know, this is a digital world now. It's like normally on a on a big Hollywood movie, it'd be like, oh my gosh, we gotta have them all match, blah blah blah. So we take a risk. I I scrap the film cameras because we want to be more lean. Yeah. And more mobile in India and more go into the dugout and shoot. But still, I wanted to maintain a certain kind of uh, look, give it a look, and uh, it smoothed out. You know, Canon can have a certain kind of look to it with Canon lenses. There's a can certain look to Canon has. Uh, but this, the, the Super Baltars added a different element. Yeah, I ended up shooting, uh, going to India, shooting with uh, 7D Super Baltar, having the most amazing camera team, having half the team from Slumdog be a part of it. Oh, wow. I had the Slumdog team from India. Uh, I had the Slumdog truck. I had my buddy Jazz, who worked on Darjeeling Limited uh, in India. He was on the camera team. Uh, amazing camera operator, Garrett Benson, who is you know right-hand guy, camera operator, did all the steady cam shots running up and down the slums. So, yeah, Not Today came out. It's coming out, uh, I believe, August 6th to DVD. Mm -hmm. uh, it'll be sold in Walmart, all major retail stores. I think released uh, uh, Lionsgate. And after seeing Act of Valor and then seeing what I shot on there, and I felt really good about the decision. It was still my first movie, still a lot of growing to be done yeah. uh, for future. But now it's, you know, the world's just exploding with cameras all over the place, different choices and different opportunities. But that, at that time, it was uh, on the cusp, on the heels of like, oh, we haven't really seen like a, a movie on the big screen. But I was able to see the, uh, Not Today in, in Pasadena. Uh, Lamley Playhouse. Oh, nice. On 2K. And it looked great. And I, I suggest that's how you really should see the movie. But yeah, if you go pick it up August 6th, you can definitely see it there um, on the shelves and in Redbox. Oh, great. Cool. So uh, where can uh, where can people find you online if they want to find you or your work or connect with you or ask you questions directly? Yes, you can find me at abemartinez.com. That's A-B-E Martinez, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z.com. I'm also on Twitter, which is very interesting because I never know what to say, but uh, I'm on Twitter at LitByEye, L-I-T-B-Y-E-Y-E, LitByEye. So check that out, definitely. Cool. Well, uh, Abe Martinez, thank you very much for coming to the Cinematography Podcast. Talk to you soon. So that was Abe Martinez. It was indeed. Recorded probably a year ago. <laughs> At this point, yeah, probably a year I'm, ago. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry, Abe. I'm very, I'm very sorry, Abe. Too. I I hope you will come back on the show. Yeah, you 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 can come in right now and have a whole new uh, set of stories to tell us. I promise it won't take another year. So let's uh, let's move into our war story. Who's our war story tonight? Uh, today, hey, who the hell knows what time of day we're listening to this thing? You know, it, it could be any time or any place, thanks to the magic of podcasting. Podcasting. This episode brought to you by podcasting. God, we just like just created a black hole of logic for ourselves. All right. Uh, our war story is from none other than David Leitner. And David is a very unique individual. David has probably more job titles than just about anyone I've I've ever met. Mm -hmm. And concurrently, he's not only a filmmaker, a director, a cinematographer. I believe he used to work in a laboratory or a post house. Oh, he talks about that. He worked at Duart, right? Duart, yeah. And um, really, really innovative technologist. This guy does work for Sony. He's an author, and he's been uh, published all over the place. I see his stuff pop up in different magazines. Uh, he's got a blog online, and uh, he's been to Sundance numerous times. And I, I mean, 
and Berlin and everywhere else. Yeah, he with, founded his own festival. With, with yeah, and films and all these festivals. It, I mean, he's really an, an amazing person, and uh, this is his war story. All right. And now war stories. My father started running marathons when he was 53 or 54. I think it was a midlife crisis thing. And he ran about 25 of them until he stopped running marathons. And and his favorite was the New York Marathon. Sometime in the early 90s, I was asked to do the New York shoot of an Austrian documentary about fitness. And the Austrian director came over and was in New York City. We were going to film the New York Marathon in Super 16. So I was to be at the uh, Verzano Narrows Bridge when all the runners start, and then I somehow had to hightail it up to Williamsburg and be there to film the runners as they came by. Then somehow I had to get myself over to, what is it, 59th Street, where the race ends. It was quite a day running around with an assistant shooting Super 16. So I get onto 59th Street, which is close to where the finish line was in those days. And I've got a very long lens. I'm sure I was shooting with a zoom, and I don't know what I had, but let's say I was at the 120 end of a 12 to 120. No, no, it had to be even a tighter zoom than that. But anyway, I'm shooting the runners coming towards me just in front of the finish line, and I'm framed so that the framing will capture about one head at a time coming towards me. Clearly, the depth of uh, field is very, very narrow. So as a runner is coming towards me, he comes into focus, his head and shoulders come into focus and then go out of focus, and then another one comes in. Very dramatic, and I I thought it was a cool shot. What are the odds? Because thousands of people run this marathon, And I'm near the finish line with a long lens on my Super 16 Aton, and I'm aimed into this throng of runners coming towards me. Very narrow angle of view, very shallow focus. What are the odds of my father running into that frame? And there he was, right smack into the frame. And I thought, wow, you know, that's great. I didn't hold any thought that that would ever make it into the finished film. I was in Berlin at the Berlinale when this Austrian feature film, and now it had been blown up to 35 millimeter on on fitness, it, it premiered. And again, what are the odds that that shot would be in the film? And there he was on the big screen in Berlin. So when I got back to the States, I told my father, who's an attorney in Tennessee, who has no idea what I do for a living because no one in my family is in the film business whatsoever. I'm not even sure he goes to movies. And I told him this whole story about how unlikely it was that he would run into my field of view and how even more unlikely it was that he would make Final Cut, have his screen debut on the big screen in Berlin. And he just stood there looking at me like, yeah, so? (laughs) It didn't mean a thing. And that's my story. And now, short ends. All right, so that was David Leitner's War Story. Uh, Tune in whenever the hell we get that episode up, and you can hear uh, an extended interview with him. Fascinating, fascinating guy. 
Wow. Well, I hope it's not as long as it was between episodes three and four. So. I certainly hope so myself. Yeah, I, I sort of wish when we interviewed him that we'd recorded his argument with me about Final Cut Pro 10 because he's one of the only people who's eloquently defended that pile of crap. You know, he uh, he's a big believer in it, and I know that you are not. So um, I wish that you guys had been rolling on that, too, because it, it was a pretty staggering debate, I gotta say, just to watch the two of you go yeah. back and forth. We should bring it back in. I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, when someone says... I like it. There's no way to argue with that. Great. I'm glad it works for you. You know, I'm not going to tell anyone that Final Cut Pro doesn't work for them if it does. He seems to have uh, really found a way, though, to not only make it work for him, he seemed to find a way to defend it as, uh, you know, yeah. as, as a, a useful tool, which is something I know that you wholeheartedly reject. But I... <laughs> Anyway, hey, let's get move on to short ends. Uh, short ends, uh, of course, are our obsession of the week, our obsession of things that we're you know working with. It could be a product, it could be a an event, it could be a mm-hmm. thing. Ben, what is your short end this week? My short end is uh, a computer program that I used. I said earlier that I had done some video design for the Pasadena Playhouse for a show called Stoneface, and the uh, application that we use uh, for that is a program called QLab. It's made by a company called Figure 53. You can find them at figure53.com, and you can actually download QLab for free to mess around with it. It was originally designed as a uh, as a sound queuing program, and then they added video into it, and then we're in version 3 right now, I believe. And version 3 is, like, pretty robust when it comes to, to video. And uh, it's it's just an amazing program, and it's interesting to do video design for theater because it's a lot like filmmaking, but it's also a lot like theater. You're figuring out how the video is going to work within the show and all that stuff, and then having an understanding of this program, which gives you some pretty comprehensive tools like alpha channels. For instance, I had somebody blowing smoke over an image, and, and they were, they're standing on stage and they blew smoke. And I added a smoke element with an alpha channel that, I, that we were able to independently cue. So the deal is when you're doing a live stage play, stuff has to cue to what the actors are doing. And the timing is going to be different every day. So you have to create a project that's a little bit flexible, um, that, can, that can be retimed easily. I know that there are more expensive and more fancy pants ways to go about doing video design. But uh, I think QLab is pretty uh, accessible. You can buy it. You can rent it. If for like six bucks a day, you can get the full professional version of it if you're only using it for a day or two. And you can uh, run up to eight screens off of it. And basically with random access memory, it's, it's a really fascinating uh, application. And, and I sometimes wonder if there's any use uh, for it in actual filmmaking. But it's more like it's a cross between projection and editing what we were doing. And it, and it was a lot of fun. I think you could use it to cue live rear projection plates absolutely you could so if you're doing poor man's process with a with a rear projection uh you could definitely cue certain uh, events that might happen or you know certain moments uh, behind uh action which to me seems like that would be a great way you could have something possibly running on a loop i'm guessing and then oh yeah cue, no. cue a particular action that might absolutely happen. so like in Stoneface, we would have like i was saying we would have a projection of a stage door and then somebody would step on stage wave duck behind the flat and they would spontaneously step into the shot mm-hmm. and be obviously filmed and it was like a magic trick figuring out how to come how to how to execute that idea and anthony backman and i who did all the designs for it you know kind of tried a bunch of different things but qlab was the easiest most accessible way that i've ever found to do it i don't think people realize how much rear projection actually goes on in the the television and you know movies that they see i know there was massive rear projection that went on in the movie oblivion supposedly the the whole oh yeah floating cloud home floating yeah they they innovated a whole new way to do it in oblivion it was pretty pretty fantastic i know driving sequences for shows like 24 and a lot of other things a lot of other television shows that have a lot of car chases and driving scenes have a poor man's process and have uh, you know 
background plates they're running with particular action and the ability to cue things at a certain point might be very handy for the filmmaking because it's like the director wants to call bang or call cue or whatever it is and then boom suddenly you can run yeah that. you can just hand the director when he or she wants it to go and they could just hit the space bar hit go it, yeah it's pr- actually there's even a, a remote app that you can get for your iphone or ipad right now so you can run it remotely as long as you're on the same wi-fi network what's that thing called again it's called QLab, and you can find it at figure53.com Cool. Hey, uh, my obsession this week is actually uh, with the ribcage backbone, and the ribcage backbone is a hack. It's a mod to the GoPro Hero 3 black or silver edition camera, uh, or Hero 3 Plus, I should say, and it, you know, fundamentally does something to the camera. It it It's a permanent mod in which you remove the original lens from the camera and now you have the ability to use interchangeable lenses you have the ability to use either c cs or m12 and i have to say it's a really really cool system it does take some technical know-how to put it on but if someone who's adventurous and wants to you know wait this is like a kit that you buy and you do it at home this is a kit that you can yeah it you have to have some technical aptitude to do this and it could be a 45 minute to an hour long process and for some people out there who don't trust themselves or don't want to possibly get into you know camera hacking on a physical sense this may not be the thing for you so for me it's like a three-week process i think you're being too hard on yourself i think that you could you're right i could probably do it in a week and a half (laughs) anyway here's the thing you don't have to you don't have to do it yourself hot rod cameras is the only company in in hollywood or los angeles actually that's doing this oh so this is secretly a plug for your service well you know you don't have to you don't have to you know, use our service. You can try and do this yourself. And I'm just you calling can. you out, man. I would, I would take it to you before I try and do this thing myself. That sounds like a, like I would, I would fuck it up 20 different ways. Well, well, here's, here's kind of the cool stuff about what we do. And yes, it is a little bit of a plug for us, but um, you know, you could also buy it directly from the company. You don't have to buy it from us. And if you're in Canada, maybe that makes sense because you could pay in your local currency mm-hmm. and everything else rather than convert to us dollars. But, but yeah, they're Canadian company and they're, they're really, really cool guys. And there's a bunch of great C mount lenses and some in Canada lenses. they call them C mount. <laughs> Thanks. I'll, I'll have to be sure to send a link to this show to our friends at, at, in Canada. At, yeah, in Canada for this, because so they can so they can yeah hear, hear you you mocking their uh, you know their pronunciation. Absolutely, and okay. tell them that their bacon isn't bacon either while you're at it. Bacon is so delicious. It anyway, <laughs> so so here here's the thing the uh, the the rib cage uh, the, the rib cage mod to this uh, allows you to use these different lenses and it allows you to work far more professionally than the lens that is included on the GoPro and it enables you to fix your focus. It enables you to uh, work in a, there's another hack you can do on the camera actually too. So it overrides the ability to have the auto iris. There's, there's various oh, things nice. that we can do to give you now, especially with the new ProTune software that is our firmware that it comes included with uh, these cameras, you have the more professional control than you ever had before. And then with this mod, you can do stuff that you've never been able to do before. And we're putting them on helicopters. We're putting them in, you know, crash housings and all kinds of other fun stuff. I need to get on it, man. I have a GoPro and I've never used it. And and it's because I like mess around with the menus and I'm like, oh 
oh man, this is such a headache even just to get it working. GoPro went public recently. They made a bunch of money. I don't really know what they're going to do next, but uh, I guarantee you it won't be boring. They have the number one <laughs> name in this industry for these sort of like small. It won't be boring. Destroyable cameras. Oh, that was the other little plug I was going to do, which is we're now actually doing something kind of innovative to ourselves. We are offering an extended warranty on GoPros and particularly on our mod to the GoPro. So uh, ordinarily, if you mod this, you void your warranty. If you get our extended warranty, we actually cover it no fault for three years. You drop it in the water, you crash it on the ground, you put it in your helicopter, destroy it. It gets replaced for free, which is pretty damn cool. How much does this mod cost if you buy it? Like, even if I wasn't to hire you to do it, what's the mod itself? I believe with camera, with the, the kit, and us to do it, it costs about 900 bucks. Okay, but like if I was just to buy the mod, like let's say I already have the camera and I was just going to buy the mod itself. I believe it's 250 Okay. So, so yeah, it's about 250 for the kit. And then, of course, you need lenses. And uh, we can help you with that, too. There's lenses. There's all kinds of stuff that we can put it together for I you. I feel like, uh, like we all missed it, uh, a window of opportunity to buy cheap C-mount lenses on eBay for years. And probably they're going up in price again. No, I think they're still pretty cheap. Oh, you, really? You can definitely still get them. But remember, it's a tiny little like quarter-inch size sensor inside the GoPro. So... You're definitely going to want to have sensors that go on the wide side. If you were having a hard time figuring out uh, with the GH4 on what size, you know, lens you should be using on there, you're going to want to go really, really wide for the GoPro. Unless you want extreme telephoto. And that's the really cool thing about this this mod is that you could actually put PL mount lenses. You could put EF lenses. You could put lenses on this camera via a C mount adapter that you'd never be able to use before. So if you want like the equivalent of like a 2000 millimeter super 35 lens, you can do that now with a much Oof. smaller lens, which is, I think, awesome. That is kind of cool. That is cool. It is cool. And you can do and you can do it without having to be, uh, you know, really stopped down like some of the the other larger, bigger lenses are out there. You can use it really. Yeah, it's it's fun. And, uh, you know, you can get two point seven K now out of a GoPro, which is amazing. So that's pretty sweet. Yeah. At twenty four frames a second and record to relatively inexpensive cards inside. And if you don't shake the camera around too much, it's going to be a really good looking image. The whole point of that camera is to shake it around too much. Okay, you're, the whole point is to shake it around, but you you know you don't see a single shot on the GoPro reel, and you've probably seen GoPro reels and stuff on YouTube where you go, "Wow, that is amazing! How does that footage look that way?" They work really hard not to shake it too much. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like they'll put it on, like on a surfboard that's moving crazy and make sure it's just locked down to the board, so something is stationary. It's like the best camera I've ever seen for giving you the point of view of objects. Yes, absolutely. If you wanted the point of view of this banana, we've got the camera. For banana you. cam. Banana cam. I'm going to start working on my banana cam. So that about wraps us up, right? I think that's it. So hopefully we'll have episode five out relatively soon. Uh, please go on iTunes and give us a positive review and five stars and tell all your friends. You can also find these shows at cinematographypodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter. Which is, uh, what's our Twitter handle? Short ends with a Z. Of course. <laughs> and Ilya, how do people find you if they want to find you online? They find me at hotrodcameras.com. All right. And I'm benrockonline.com. And you can follow me on Twitter at Neptune Salad. Uh, please hire Kay's Alatrakshi, who did all of our music, and uh, pay him a lot of money to compose an awesome score for you. You can find him at www.musicbykays.com. He's worth every penny. He is worth more than every penny. I, I think it's uh, like a 1.5 conversion because he's Italian. Oh, wow. <laughs> worth every lira. They don't use the lira. They don't. He's it's worth euro. Every, every euro. Every euro. He's a fully naturalized citizen, Ilya. <laughs> uh, I wasn't suggesting that we deport him. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> anyway, well, thank you very much, and uh, we'll see you next time at the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>